With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about Clark Rockefeller. And I'll be talking about the power of suggestion. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. I'm feeling a little bit anxious. Okay. Yeah. What's going on? I'm doing something I've not done yet, and we haven't done yet as a podcast, and Mm -hmm. I'm feeling a little bit nervous about it. Is that because it's a bad idea? I don't think it's a bad (laughs) idea, but I picked a case that I knew nothing about, and then I started researching it, and like... I just kept going and going and going. And it's a really big case. And so I'm going to have to do it in two parts. I hate it. <laughs> I'm hitting pause on this already. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. And I think that I've picked a good spot to split it up. Uh-huh. So I hope our listeners feel the same way. But straight off the bat, I'm telling you, this does not wrap up in this episode. It doesn't even get to trial in this episode. So I'm very sorry. Send all hate mail directly <laughs> to Brandy. Should we just jump right in? Are you ready? Yeah. Um. Mine is a long one. Okay, Sounds well, like fuck. yours so is a is long mine. one. So, so light on the chit chat. All right. Getting right to business. <clears throat> I'm very excited about this. You had a very intriguing intro. Mm, the power of suggestion. Yeah. I didn't mean for you to repeat it. I mean, we're, we're short the on time. The power of suggestion. There's like a quote I have to say it so many times. Okay. <laughs> And then Beetlejuice appears. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I gotta make it big. Hold on. I'm kind of nervous. Why are you so nervous? Know. Do you want to tell people why you were late today? I was late today because I was watching TV, mm-hmm. sitting there in my pajamas, watching a little TV. Hadn't read through my case this morning, nothing. And then I um, had got really sucked in by what I was watching and completely lost track of time. So uh-huh. I quickly had to read through my case, take a shower, and get ready. Um, and, and what were you watching, um, Brandy? It was it something on PBS? That's or? right. Uh-huh. I was watching Nova. <laughs> no, I was watching Dr. Phil. <laughs> Okay, this episode was crazy. It was about this 15-year-old boy, and his parents brought him on the show because they said he was uncontrollable. He would just, like, fly into these fits of rage all the time. He would hit them. They were scared of him. They really thought it was going to escalate to the part where, point where he was going to physically harm himself or others in some way. Yeah. And then he would started, like, stealing his mom's underwear and all oh, of no. this stuff and started setting these small fires in his room. Oh, God. It really had gotten out of control. He'd been to, like... All kinds of different treatment facilities. He was on like a list of like 26 different like mood altering medications, all this stuff, and nothing worked. And so Dr. Phil was like their last 
resort, apparently. Which he always should be, but okay. (laughs) And so they come on, they talk to him, and then Dr. Phil goes and talks to him off camera. Well, they do it on camera, but you only see the back of the kid's head Uh because they don't want to reveal his identity. Yeah. And so you just see the back of the kid's head and Dr. Phil's face. And they talk to him. Dr. Phil, you know, asks him a bunch of questions, whatever. Then he comes out and he tells the parents that he believes he knows what's wrong with their son. He thinks that he doesn't have a mood disorder or behavioral disorder at all, that he needs to get off all the medications and everything. He believes that he's been misdiagnosed and that he's autistic. Oh. It was crazy because it once he said that and once he like laid out the way that autism affects the brain, it made complete sense. And the parents were like, they couldn't believe that no one had seen this in their son before and that uh-huh. they'd been drugging him up on all of these different things that he didn't need to be on. Yeah, it was crazy. Okay, well, that actually does sound really interesting. It was. And I can see why you would get sucked into it. (laughs) So I apologize for being late, Kristen. You know, I was going to kick you off the podcast. (laughs) Bring in DP full time? No, just peanut. (laughs) People would love that. (laughs) Okay, enough of this. On to the case. Helen Wilson lived alone. But the 68-year-old widow wasn't ever really alone. In the nearly two decades since her husband Raymond had passed away, her family had rallied around her, even lifting her up from the darkest of depressions at times. Whether it was her siblings, children, grandchildren, or even great-grandchildren, someone was always there to give Helen a helping hand or a shoulder to lean on. And the night of February 5th, 1985, was no different. The day had been bitterly cold in Beatrice, Nebraska, spelled like Beatrice, pronounced Beatrice. It's a town of almost 13,000 in the southeast part of the state, about 40 miles south of Lincoln. Pretty big city. Pretty huge town. (laughs) And Helen Wilson wasn't feeling well. She had a terrible chest cold that just wouldn't let go. And so that evening, her son had come over to sit with her while his wife went to her Tuesday night bowling league. It was their regular Tuesday routine. Darrell, Helen's son, would sit with his mother while his wife Katie bowled, and then Katie would join them for a few minutes after league finished. On this night, Katie had arrived at 9.30, and Helen apologized that she hadn't felt up to putting on a pot of coffee. Darrell and Katie chatted for a few minutes, then left Helen for the night at about 10 till 10. Katie told Helen that she'd give her a call at midnight to remind her to take more medicine. Katie called at 11.50, and there was no answer. She called again at midnight. Again, no answer. When a third call went unanswered 15 minutes later, Katie and Darrell assumed Helen had slept through the ringing phone and went to to bed themselves. Right. It was an assumption they'd regret the rest of their lives. Oh, no. The following morning, around 9.30, Helen's sister, who lived in the same apartment building, came to Helen's apartment, as she usually did. Only on this day, February 6th, 1985, exactly 34 years ago today, as of this recording, didn't plan that. I think it's creepy when shit works out like that. It'd be really weird if you did plan it. (laughs) (laughs) Helen's sister found her apartment door damaged. It had clearly been pried open. She pushed the door open, and inside she found her sister dead on the floor. She yelled for her husband to call 911. 
The first officer was on the scene within minutes, and he did his best to preserve evidence before it was trampled by the numerous officers, detectives, coroner, etc. that would be joining him. Mm -hmm. He photographed and videotaped the scene. Helen Wilson was lying on her back on the floor of her living room. She was wearing a blue nightgown. Her hands were bound and a washcloth covered her face. Beneath the cloth, an Afghan blanket was tied around her head so tightly that it smashed her nose to one side. Oh, God. Yeah. As officers arrived, they collected hairs and blood from Helen's clothing. They took carpet samples from beneath her body and collected about 50 pieces of evidence, including a torn $5 bill found on the floor, a pair of women's underwear that had been neatly placed on the couch, and a steak knife. Helen's body was sent to Lincoln, where an autopsy would reveal that her chest cold had really been pneumonia, that she'd been raped, and that she died of suffocation, likely due to the Afghan being tied so tightly around her face. There were signs of a struggle at the scene, but it wasn't as if the place had been ransacked. And there wasn't anything missing. Her wedding ring and her mother's ring were still both on her hand. Her purse had like $1,200 cash in it. And Old it was ladies, still there. man. What is Yes. It? My great grandma used to keep in her purse like all her jewelry. Yes. Yeah. As if it was safer on safer, the arm yes, of a, like exactly. an 85 year old than, yes. you know, locked away somewhere. Yes. You know why? Why? Here's why. Here's why. Because workers might come in your house and they'll rummage through your drawers. Oh, no, that's not what I'm I'm saying. Oh, I'm, I'm saying, sorry. Like why why the killer didn't take the money. Oh, oh, okay. I, I know why. Why? Because it was a super young dude. Only here we go. Here we go. Kristen theory. Never right, but I keep trying. <laughs> People who come and rape old ladies and kill uh-huh. them are inexperienced killers. I'm guessing our perp is 17. Okay. Okay. All right. Guess you don't have to do a two-parter now, huh? Great theory. And then Kristen solved it. All right. Great. Uh, Podcast adjourned. (laughs) Okay. So clear that robbery was not the motive. Right. The scene actually reminded investigators of a series of attacks on elderly women back in 1983. Oh, shit. There goes my theory. But in those cases, all the women had been able to fight off their attacker, and no arrests had ever been made. So he was young then. Now he's okay. now he's younger. He's Benjamin <laughs> Buttony. <laughs> no one suspects. It. <laughs> one thing investigators knew for sure was that they needed to solve this thing, and they needed to do it quick because the murder of this sweet little great grandmother with no enemies had sent shockwaves through the city. An intensive investigation into Helen's death began immediately. Investigators returned to her apartment again and again, looking for anything that they had missed. And they set up a little stakeout at the cemetery following Helen's funeral. Detectives hid a, hid a voice-activated recorder in a bouquet of flowers at no. Helen's buri- burial site and watched for three days. They hoped to catch the perpetrator and record some kind of graveside confession but that never happened Mm. six days after helen's murder investigators got some news blood that was found on a blanket and sheets as well as helen's nightgown and panties had come back as type b 
Investigators knew that Helen had type O, so this blood had to belong to the killer. Remind me again, what year are we? We're in 1985. Gotcha. This was a significant break in the case because only about 10% of the population is type B. Mm. Blood profiling was the most sophisticated forensic technique at this time in 1985. And tests showed that whoever had killed Helen Wilson was a non-secretor. So that means that enzymes from the killer's blood would not show up in the bodily fluids, such as the semen that he had left behind. And since only about 20% of the peop- of the population are non-secretors, the suspect field narrowed even further. In their search for a type B non-secretor, investigators took samples from dozens of people. But it led nowhere. Mm-hmm. Finally, 10 days after Helen's murder, investigators got their first viable lead. So this 23-year-old guy, Mike Hyatt, comes into the police station and he's like, I have some information. I have no idea if it's pertinent, but I feel like it might be and I really just need to get it off my chest. Is it about a young friend of his? It's about a 17-year-old boy. Shut up! No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Don't excite me like that. He told police that on February 5th, he had run into his childhood friend, Bruce Smith. Bruce had told Mike that he was going to head back to Oklahoma soon, but that he wanted to party and get laid before he headed out of town. Oh, God. So the two made plans to meet at a bar that night. So they're at the bar that night, and Mike said that Bruce Bruce Smith just kept going on and on about how badly he needed to get laid, how long it had been, and that he'd do just about anything to make it happen. Uh Uh-oh. And so Mike's like, fine, I won't have sex with you, but I'll give you a handy today. (laughs) (laughs) That's just being a good friend. (laughs) No. So Mike, he's like tired of hearing him complain. And he's like, all right, I know of a party that's going on. There's lots of girls there. I'm sure you can find someone to hook up with. So around midnight, they left the bar and they headed to this house party. So Smith keeps making advances on one of the girls that was hosting the party. Let me guess. She could smell the desperation and on him. And she keeps shutting yeah. him down. Yeah. And so he just keeps getting like drunker and drunker. Oh, boy. And more and more angry. Oh, good. Um, by the time that they left the party or got kicked out of the party uh-huh. is more likely. It was after three in the morning and Bruce Smith was drunk angry and he still hadn't banged anyone has he heard of masturbation i mean right? <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i need to give a psa to all these angry right. guys out yes there. but mike had had enough of his shit so he just dropped him off at the intersection of sixth and quartz streets oh it didn't even like take him back to his house nope oh okay so this intersection just happened to be two blocks south of helen wilson's apartment oh no As Mike drove away, he watched Bruce head north on foot. It was bitterly cold, well below zero by this point. But Mike wasn't worried. He'd had enough of Bruce, and Bruce knew the area well. He'd grown up in Beatrice. He'd even gone to elementary school there. In fact, his grandmother used to live in the same building Helen Wilson (gasps) did. Police jumped on this lead, Mm -hmm. and they tried to talk to anyone who had interacted with Bruce at that party or after. They tracked down an acquaintance who said he'd seen Bruce on February 6th and that he'd had scratches on his face and hand. He'd told that acquaintance that he'd gotten in a fight with Mike Hyatt the night before. So investigators went back and talked to Mike again. 
there had been no fight. Oh, shit. Then investigators talked to a woman who had been at the house party that night. Her wallet had been stolen from the party. Police had found it, though, minus $60, in an alley next to Helen Wilson's apartment building. Well, shit. Okay. Police were able to track Bruce Smith's actions around Beatrice for the couple of days after Helen Wilson's murder. He'd gone to his brother's house early that morning, but his brother's wife hadn't let him in. She said she was scared of him, didn't trust him. Mm -hmm. He came back a couple of hours later, and she'd let him in to sleep for a bit. He told her his nose hurt from a fight he'd gotten in the previous night. Smith had also gone to a convenience store and stolen a bag of potato. Potato chips? Potato <laughs> chips! <laughs> I love those things. Stolen a bag of potato chips the day Helen's body had been found. You know what? Huh? I feel like that's a really dumb thing to steal. You gotta steal. Don't give me that look. Is oh. that dumber than anything else? Yeah. I mean, if you're gonna steal food. Well, because you can't like put it under your exactly. jacket. Exactly. And it's crush so. The potato chips. You're gonna crush them. They're bulky. <laughs> they make crinkly sounds. Crinkly sounds. You're right. In yeah. the scheme of snacks you could steal, probably not the best one. My recommendation. What's the most silent snack? I think bang for your buck. You steal like you know those little gross packets of like crackers with the cheese. I knew in. you were going to say that the yes. cheese crackers with the peanut butter. Yes, yeah. yes, you because yeah. those can fit into your yeah. pocket. Yeah, not too bulky. You know. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm just trying to help Tip. people. Theft out here. tips from Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> so the clerk at the store remembered him when police showed him a picture. So police were just kind of like going around mm-hmm. to different businesses and they're like, have you seen this guy? And he was like, yeah, that guy stole a bag of potato chips the other day. Obviously, he's like, I would not have noticed him if he'd stolen the cheese the crackers, cheese crackers with, with the, the peanut, peanut butter. butter. <laughs> yeah. And he said he believed that Smith had blood on his clothes. Oh, shit. Yes. Then investigators learned that a man matching Smith's description had boarded a bus for Wichita on February 9th. The ticket agent remembered him when shown a picture, and he'd said that he had wanted to go to Oklahoma, but he didn't have enough money. And so mm. Wichita was as close as he could get. Investigators believed Bruce Smith was probably their guy. And in March, they caught up with him in Oklahoma. Are you about to tell me he's not the guy? I don't know. Am I? You'd better not. They had a court order to get blood, hair, saliva, and fingerprints from him. They got their samples and sent them to the Oklahoma City Police Lab for analysis. While in Oklahoma, they learned that Bruce Smith was also the suspect in a 1981 rape there, and that there'd been a homicide in 1984 where the details matched very closely to Helen Wilson's Mm -hmm. murder, and that Bruce Smith had also made the short list of suspects in that case. Case closed. He had not been charged in either of those cases, though. It seemed everything was pointing to Bruce Smith. That is, until the lab results came back. Is he a secretor? Is he not type B? Bruce Smith was type B. Uh-huh. But he was a secretor. Damn it! He couldn't be their guy. The Holy investigation crap. moved on and quickly grew cold. Oh, is that not nuts? That is crazy. That is absolutely crazy. Yeah. I'd be like, test it again. Right. This can't be right. Weeks went by. Then months. Authorities went door to door in a 49 block area around Helen's apartment. 
they interviewed 318 people in three months. Months turned into a year, and the investigation hadn't progressed any further. And that's when Bert Searcy came in. At the time of Helen Wilson's murder, Bert was a former investigator for the Beatrice Police Department, now working as a hog farmer. So Bert was kind of like, he was pretty young still, but he Uh was technically a retired police officer. He was like 37. Oh, wow. But he was the type of guy who like didn't really know what he wanted to do in life. So like he had grown up on a farm. His family were pig farmers. He decided not to go that route. He was going to be a welder for a while. That didn't work out. He became a police officer, was police officer for several years, then an investigator. Then he left the police force because he didn't get along with the chief. Oh, okay. And decided to become a hog farmer. So at the time of the murder, he's working away on his hog farm. Mm-hmm. He fucking hates it. Uh, it sounds awful. <laughs> it sounds awful, yes. But one day he's eating his lunch, watching TV, and he heard the news of Helen Wilson's murder. And he recognized her name. She had worked at the cleaners where he'd taken his police uniforms for years. And immediately he was sucked in. He oh. needed to investigate. Yeah. And so Searcy went and talked to Helen Wilson's family. He told them he was a private investigator and that he'd like to look into her case for free. And they gave him permission. In the beginning, though, he didn't get very far. He just put word out to keep to key people in the Beatrice party scene that he was looking for information. And then in April of 1985, right around the time that the police investigation was going cold, Bert got a tip from a confidential informant. Mm-hmm. The confidential informant was a 17-year-old girl who said that on February 6th at 7.30 a.m., she was standing outside of the school waiting for class to start when she noticed all of the police cars at the apartment building across the street, Helen Wilson's apartment building. As she was watching all of the commotion, she said an acquaintance had approached her. And had said that she killed an old lady inside the apartment (gasps) building. She? What? Oh, sure, the informant had said. Look, I can tell you where the lady is laying and what happened to her, the acquaintance said. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Genders, please. Female, both female. The female said she had just killed? Yes, the female acquaintance told the... 17-year-old. 17-year-old informant that she had just killed a woman... In the apartment building. Using whose semen? (laughs) That is a great question, Kristen. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And so she, so this woman, this acquaintance comes up to this confidential informant and she's like, I, I just killed a woman inside that apartment complex or apartment building. And the informant's like, oh, sure. Okay. Uh And she's like, look, I can tell you where that lady is laying and what happened to her. And the informant just says that she said again, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. And the acquaintance said the victim would be found in the living room on her back with her hands bound and her face covered with an afghan. Oh, shit. And the informant said she just kind of brushed it off again. Okay, sure. Yeah, Yeah, because she doesn't know. And the acquaintance said, hey, look, I can prove it. I can tell you the color of a footstool laying by the body, turned upside down. The footstool was vinyl-covered, green in color. (laughs) 
Why does your face look like that? I'm just, I'm so, <laughs> how old is this person? How old is the? I know the girl's 17. 17. What's, how old's the other? She's an acquaintance, so around, maybe, I think just a little bit older. Okay. okay. I'm just, <sighs> The confidential informant then gave Searcy the name of this acquaintance. Her name was Joanne Taylor. And Taylor had told the informant she hadn't acted alone. Her buddy Lobo was there too. Lobo? Lobo. That's Spanish for wolf. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So there are a couple of things that are important to know about this statement by the confidential informant. First, Lobo was the nickname of a guy that Joanne Taylor was actually friends with, Joseph White. Second, Joanne Taylor and this confidential informant were not friends. They were enemies. Taylor and this informant had actually gotten into multiple physical physical altercations before, including one time where Taylor attempted to break the informant's arm by slamming it in a car door. What? Yes. (laughs) And third, there was no official record of this statement until almost four years later when Bert Searcy wrote it down as an official statement in an attempt to be able to further investigate the case. What? <laughs> is that is that concerning? Uh, super. I mean, he remembers what these people said exactly, Kristen. The footstool was green, covered in vinyl, green in color. (laughs) Okay. Does the verbatim official statement say green in color? It sure does. Nope. Nope. That's all I need to know. That's police talk if I've ever... Yeah. Breaker one now. Vehicle is green in color. No one says green in color. No one says green in color. You're 100 percent Everyone correct. who's not on the police force knows you can just say green. It's green. <laughs> but when they go through police training, they're like, no, no, no. No, no, no. You must you specify. Spell it out. <laughs> In color. <laughs> so Searcy had been investigating this case on his own, but he could only get so far without a badge. He'd asked to see the crime scene evidence. But his request was denied. Right, because you're not a police officer anymore. So he'd had to walk away from the case. And as I mentioned earlier, the case went cold. Then, in 1987, five years after he had initially left the police department, Bert was hired as a road deputy for the sheriff's office. Immediately after being hired, Bert started working on Sheriff Jerry DeWitt to let him investigate the cold case. Mm-hmm. It had been more than two years since the murder. And the sheriff liked that Searcy was like a go-getter, but he quickly tired of hearing his hints about knowing stuff about the investigation. And he hated that Searcy didn't take notes on anything. So finally, in 1988, Sheriff uh, DeWitt told Searcy to write everything down in a report and then present it to him or to fucking drop it. Well, yeah. Yeah. So he's like, okay, I'm tired of hearing about this. Either give me a written up report. Yes. Present it to me and I will look into it and see if this warrants further investigation. Uh Or stop fucking talking about it. 
Well, yeah, we're not here for your oral history exactly. of this case. And so Searcy wrote it up. He wrote up everything that he knew. And the sheriff thought there were some interesting points that probably weren't warranted further investigation. Like the fact that Joseph White and Joanne Taylor often hung out with a guy named Tom Winslow. Bert had questioned Winslow about his whereabouts the night of the murder, and Winslow had told him that he was working the overnight shift as a cook at a truck stop in town that night. But when Bert followed up on this, he learned that Winslow had actually called in sick that night. Hmm. Not great. Mm -mm. So the sheriff looks over this report that Searcy writes up and he's like, maybe this is worth looking into. But the sheriff's office didn't have jurisdiction over the Winslow murder investigation. The police department did. So the sheriff was like, all right, all I can do is give this information to the police chief. Uh And Searcy's like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Because he didn't get along with the police chief. Yeah, probably because he never wrote anything down. Probably because he's a fucking dick. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) So he hands all this information over to the police chief. And the police chief's like, thanks, no thanks. Searcy has the wrong people. Mm. This information isn't correct. So he took that really well, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah, no, he didn't really take it yeah. well, but there wasn't a, really anything else he could do. His investigation had stalled again. Uh-huh. But he was sure that he had the right people. So he just kept working on it. He went back to his confidential informant, and this time he got her he got her to agree to lose the confidential part and give a videotaped statement. Okay. So on January 15th, 1989, Confidential informant number one was revealed to be Lisa Brown, who back in 1985 was a 17-year-old high school student who liked to hang out with an older crowd. That's how she knew Joanne Taylor. So I think Joanne's like, in 1985 was 20, 22, something like that. Okay, gotcha. In the video statement, confidential informant, no longer confidential, Lisa Brown, um, told the same story from her previous statement. But this time... She remembered a few more colorful details. That's not how these things work. Including that Joanne Taylor had showed off scratches on her arm and hands as proof of the attack. Additionally, at the prompting of Deputy Searcy, she told a story about a party trick she'd seen Joseph White do frequently, which ended with him ripping a $5 bill in half. Remember, they found a ripped $5 bill on the... On the floor of the apartment. Why do you go up to your enemy and tell her this, though? Right? I mean, they were... Yes! Exactly! Yeah. (sighs) But that wasn't all, Kristen. Okay. What else do you have? She also now remembered that she had seen Taylor and White get out of a car in the parking lot of Wilson's apartment building on the night of February 5th, 1985. Not only that... (laughs) That is so stupid. But she knew exactly what time it was. How? 10.18 p.m. How? Because, Kristen, she had checked the bank clock across the alley. What was she doing in an alley at At 10.18? when she's 17 years old. And it's freezing out. Yeah. And why does she remember this now, four years later, but didn't mention it at all when she was... Because a wannabe detective is feeding her all the information. That's why. But... 
But what explanation did she have? She checked the clock, Kristen. Yeah, but why was she out in an alley? Kristen, I don't know. (laughs) Neither does she. You're not going to believe this next part, though. It was all made up. 10.18 p.m.? Uh Uh-huh. That's right around the time of death given by the medical examiner. That is amazing. Isn't that unbelievable? unbelievable. (laughs) Yes. Lisa Brown wasn't done yet, though. Mm-hmm. She also remembered that Tom Winslow and his girlfriend got out of the car, too. Uh, okay, so now it's a party? And she could even describe the coats they were wearing down to the specific style and color. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, uh-huh, uh-huh. the car they got out of, mm-hmm. she was pretty sure... It was a 72 Oldsmobile, green with a brown top. She saw all this at night in addition to memorizing the colors of their jackets. Which happened to be the exact description of Tom Winslow's car. I'm sure it was. You know, (laughs) I am also good at spotting the year of any given car. Is she a mechanic? Like how? That is ridiculous. It's really interesting the details you can come up with four years later. Huh? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> I am very interested in this. So Bert's like, great! This is great information. Moving right along. Tom Winslow, you say, huh? I'm going to go interview him. So how did Bert not get immediately fired? Yeah, that's a great question. Okay. So Bert goes on over to the Lancaster County Jail where Tom Winslow is being held on an unrelated assault charge. Mm-hmm. And he interviews him. And Winslow's like, listen, I don't know anything about any murder, but I did loan my car to Joseph White and Joanne Taylor that night, so who knows what they were up to? Which I think is a legitimate answer. Like, you're like, I don't know, I swear I wasn't there. Probably look at those people. Uh-huh. Like, anything to deflect yeah. from yourself. Even if... Taylor and White had nothing to do with it. You just deflect. Because you know that Deputy Searcy's going in there and being like, well, I heard that you were with White and Taylor and you guys murdered some old lady. Uh-huh. So he's like, I don't know anything about anything. Go talk to them. Right. And Bert Searcy's like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> then, so he leaves, whatever. He didn't get anywhere with Winslow. Then... As if from nowhere, another confidential informant comes forward. (laughs) Come on. Come on. And she said that she sometimes shared an apartment with Joanne Taylor and Beatrice. And that on the day Helen Wilson's body was found, Joanne said something about how she and Joseph White may have been involved in a murder. May have? May have. And, okay... I know you're going to feel pretty suspicious about this informant, but Kristen, it's 100% true because the vi- it was videotaped. Oh. The statement was videotaped. Unfortunately, that videotape was lost, and this is just a transcript <laughs> of what took place during that er- interview. Does she use the same words and vocabulary as Bert? <laughs> so, Bert's like, great. I've got 
confidential informant number one, confidential informant number two. I've got Winslow lying about being at work that night. I can place Winslow and Taylor and White in Helen Wilson's parking lot at the time of death. Yeah. This is all fabulous. You can even place them in their coats. (laughs) (laughs) So he takes all of these statements to County Attorney Richard Smith. And Richard Smith was like, this looks pretty good. I think this might be enough for arrest warrants. So he begins prepping arrest warrants for Taylor and White. But he's like, you know, I'd really like to get a better statement from Tom Winslow. I don't really like this. I don't know. I loaned them my car. That's all I know. Uh huh. So on March 14th, 1989, Searcy and Richard Smith, this county attorney, paid Tom Winslow another visit. He was still being held in jail on assault charges. And this time Winslow had his attorney present. And this time, though, this statement was videotaped. At first, Winslow told the same stories before. Exactly. I don't know anything about a murder. I wasn't there. But I did loan White and Taylor my car. Okay. But Searcy was like, nope. Nope. I know you know more. I know you know more. And you're just going to have to tell us. And at that point, the videotape stopped. <laughs> and taping resumed an hour later. Um, did he have a black eye? Did he right? have bruising on his face? Okay, but this is the thing. So there's like a little bit of controversy over this part because he did have an attorney present. But I don't think that means shit. Like his attorney could easily have been, you know, we've seen how bad if it's a public defender. I don't know for sure that's a public defender, but we've seen how badly representation can happen when someone doesn't have money for a great attorney. Like look yeah. at the case of Brendan Dassey from Making a Murder, who his, yeah, his attorney was present for everything and they let him. Yeah completely be raked over the coals when he had no idea what was going on. So when the so videotape ends, uh-huh. he doesn't have an attorney. Videotape resumes, he's got a public He attorney. had an attorney there the whole time oh. when he was saying the original statement. Okay. So the first time he was interrogated, he did not have an attorney. So this second time when he's going to make the videotape statement, his attorney's present, and he tells the same story. Okay. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. I just loaned them my car. Gotcha. I don't know anything about an old lady being murdered. And then the videotape stops. And an hour later, the videotape begins again. This time, he has completely changed his story. And the attorney is still there. He's still present. And I... See, this is... When you hear what he tells the second time, you have to know that this attorney did not have his best interest in mind. Because now he says that he and his girlfriend were there the night that Helen Wilson was murdered. That they entered the apartment along with Joanne Taylor and Joseph White. And that almost immediately, Joseph White and Joanne Taylor forced Helen Wilson into her bedroom and shut the door. And that Winslow and his girlfriend fled the scene 
as soon as they heard Helen Wilson start screaming. But this didn't take place in her bedroom. It didn't take place in, in her bedroom. Room. It took place in the living room. Yes. But that was all that the attorney needed to see, that the county attorney needed to see. Mm-hmm. He's like, great, we're moving forward with charges. So the day after interviewing Tom Winslow, Searcy and other officers boarded a Nebraska State Patrol plane heading south to Alabama, where Joseph White now lived. At about 11.25 p.m. on March 15, 1989, Joseph White was awoken by the phone ringing. The caller said the police were outside and he needed to come out with his hands up. White later recalled how he just like got up out of bed, pulled on a pair of jeans and Mm -hmm. opened the door and that 20 guns (gasps) were cocked and aimed at him and someone yelled freeze. Oh my God. They shouted at him to raise his hands and kneel and then lie down. A SWAT team officer kneed White in the middle of the back as he started to like lean forward to lay down. Then he felt a handgun pressed to the base of his skull. Jeez. And they told him he was under arrest for first degree murder. Holy shit. Yeah. They did like a full on takedown. Whoa. Yeah. Joseph White was still in just his jeans when the police sat him down in an Alabama interrogation room. And Bert Searcy was nearly foaming at the mouth by the time he was read his rights just after midnight on March 16th, 1989. He couldn't wait to question him. This was a moment he had been waiting for four, for four years. This was a moment that he had been waiting for for four years. But it was White who would ask the first question. Why am I a suspect in a case of murder one? Uh-huh. As far as we're concerned, you were involved in the murder of Helen Wilson, Searcy replied. White said that he didn't know Wilson. But Searcy said that he had eyewitnesses. What if I can put you there? Searcy asked. I'd say you have to have some awful damn good proof. Mm-hmm. What if I have some awful damn good proof? And White said, I'd like to see it. Yeah. And Searcy said, well, what if I showed it to you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and White's like, okay. okay. Show it to me. Yes, that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly what I want. what I'm asking for here. And Searcy told White that they'd arrested his friend Joanne Taylor and that they'd found White's fingerprints on a $5 bill in the apartment. A lie. There Mm. were no fingerprints on the $5 bill. And from that moment, Joseph White said, I want to see a lawyer. He'd been in the interrogation room like 24 minutes at that point. He was like, nope, I want to see a lawyer. Well, I'm assuming he's innocent, obviously. And, like, if you're innocent and you, people come at you with, oh, we've got your yeah. fingerprints, it's like, yeah, 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 okay, we're done here. But Searcy didn't stop questioning him. 
Of course he didn't, because he's not a real detective. Right. <laughs> it's like if they sent me in there. Yeah. And Circe said, who was there if it wasn't you, Joe? That's that's the dumbest, <laughs> that question. The dumbest question. If a person is saying they didn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Are they supposed to solve the case exactly. for you? And Joe goes, I don't know. I've told you five times in a row. I don't know anything. Yeah. And Circe goes, you're saying you didn't push that little old lady over? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And White's like, how could I? I wasn't there. (laughs) Oh, God, this poor shirtless man. Yeah. And Circe goes, we've got the people involved in this damn thing telling us the same thing. Everyone's admitting it. Everyone's saying you're involved. And, And Joe goes, well, I tell you what, until I see a lawyer, I'm not saying nothing else. Because apparently you're trying to prove that I'm a liar when I'm not. Mm-hmm. And like Circe keeps trying to ask him questions. He oh, just sure. finally at this point, he's like, I want a lawyer. I want a lawyer. I want a lawyer. He stops answering questions. Yeah. Yeah. Which he should have stopped asking him questions. Yes, he should he said, have. I want a lawyer. He 100% should have. <sighs> So the questions stopped finally, but not before White agreed to give blood, saliva, and hair samples. And Circe was like, you know, these samples could put you at the scene. And White said, yep. And it can also positively prove I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So I'd be really reluctant to give any samples if I thought they were full of shit. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, I I'd- completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. And if they'd given him a lawyer when he asked for it, like if they'd immediately stopped, yeah. it wouldn't have even gotten to that. Right. So that all happens in Alabama, about 350 miles away in Buncombe County, North Carolina. Authorities were waiting for Bert Searcy to arrive. They'd just arrested Buncombe? Joanne Buncombe County. Okay. B-U-N-C-O-M-B-E. Okay, yeah. I don't, that <laughs> that sounds... looks like buncombe to me. Sure. You want to pronounce it some other way? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they'd arrested Joanne Taylor. Like White, she was very confused as to why she was being arrested. But unlike White, she was talking a lot. She must have been at that old woman's apartment that night, she said, because the other officers told me I was there. Oh, no. Later, she recalled, well, we sat and talked and we worked on bringing my memory back little by little. Oh, God. That's what she said of the North when she was set down by the North Carolina officers. But she was strung out yes she was exhausted she was was holding her head in her hands she was crying she by the time the nebraska officers got there she told them she couldn't remember anything and she told them that her personality disorder made it impossible for her to remember things but don't worry Kristen. i know you're worried i am worried probably not about the seriously was there to help her (sighs) damn it i hate this he helped her jog her memory 
and together and her that she was a murderer and together they came up with the story she gave and a videotape statement the night wilson died taylor said she and white went to the widow's one-story white house uh, in the evening to do yard work uh well he couldn't have helped her that much right <laughs> i mean so the video paused and then oh and, no and taylor was reminded oh it was an apartment white wouldn't be doing yard work in february remember this was february it's very very cold and then there was a 20 minute gap in the interview videotape and suddenly when it kicked back on joanne taylor's memory had improved the one-story, light-colored house became a three-story brick building, and the summer evening became a bitterly cold winter night. Uh-huh. From recalling almost nothing to telling a story of rape and murder, Taylor said White and she and another boy had stabbed a woman. But in reality, Wilson had been suffocated, not mm-hmm. stabbed. Searcy pressed hard to get Taylor to remember the name of the other boy, doing everything but directly feeding her the name Winslow. It didn't work. He even at one point was like trying to like fit like words in the conversation that sounded kind of like Winslow. She was You're like kidding me. He was like, um, do you know what a windmill looks like? You're kidding. No. Oh, yeah. like Ugh. crazy shit. Yeah. But she couldn't come up with the name of the other person that was there that night. Terrible at charades. Don't worry, Kristen. I can tell you're pretty worried. I am worried. There would be plenty of time for her to implicate others later. Uh... So White and Taylor were taken back to Nebraska to face charges of murder. And once they got back to Nebraska, they showed Taylor a photo lineup to try and identify the other man who'd been there that night. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, she picked out Tom Winslow out of that photo lineup. Hmm. Was it pointed out to her (laughs) (laughs) And she said that Winslow's girlfriend, Beth Johnson, was there that night as well. So they arrested Tom Winslow on suspicion of murder that same day. Sitting in jail that night, he asked to see Deputy Searcy. He told him he'd lied about the whole thing. He hadn't been there that night at all. Whoa. He'd never been in Wilson's apartment. And Searcy was furious. It was Winslow's statement that had secured the arrest warrants for Taylor and White. But Winslow didn't change his whole story. White and Taylor were there for sure he said. And so was his girlfriend, Beth Johnson. Only that wasn't possible. Was Winslow lying because he was scared? Was he telling the deputy what he thought he wanted to hear? Who knows? But Beth Johnson had an airtight alibi that night. She was nowhere near Wilson's apartment. Searcy was spinning. Had he been looking at the wrong people? Just as he began to question everything he was so sure of thus far, he got a call that convinced him he'd been right all along. So, 
Was Bert Searcy wrong? Had he had tunnel vision this whole time? He was more than wrong. Were Joanne's memories real or merely the power of suggestion? These answers and more. I can answer on them next all week's right episode now. of Let's Go to Court. <laughs> oh my God, this is so good. Isn't this nuts? I, I'm so angry right now. I know, and I'm really sorry. No, I no, I'm mad at this okay. Bert character. <laughs> I, these cops who do this shit. Oh my it's infuriating. I think there needs to be an extra level of jail time for this because that's that's insane. It's nuts. It's oh. nuts. And there's more to come. Wow. Yeah. I'm gonna read you guys the first three paragraphs of my script and I'm gonna cut it off. <laughs> Okay, I don't know. So, off the record, how long was that? Like, that was 4,000 words, so I f- thought that was okay to... Did I get enough of the details? Yeah, we've been think? talking okay. for like an hour. Okay, yeah, okay. You're okay. totally good. Okay. And even if it was half an hour, like... Okay. All right. Yeah. Calm yourself. <laughs> I'm really nervous that people are going to hate the two-parter. Well, I mean, podcasts do it all the time. It's not like this is yeah. some kind of crazy concept. And I think we should keep this part in. Yeah. And people, just be honest with us. Yeah. We, we can handle it. Yeah. If you don't like two-parters, we won't yeah. do it again. Yeah. So just let us know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But be sure to tune in for the dramatic conclusion of... They won't because they're too mad at you. They probably are. <laughs> no, they're not. Calm down. <laughs> That's a really... I mean, it's amazing so far. Uh-huh. It's going to be really hard for it me to not Google gets, stuff. Don't Google it. I it won't, gets I won't. even crazier. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> you ready for mine? Yes. Okay. I have to start with a big thank you to our listeners, Adam and Connor. They sent us an email. Uh-huh. So Adam was like, hey, I really enjoyed the Kansas City ser- series, but I'm kind of interested in a Boston series. Yeah. So he sent a list of 10 amazing cases that I will not share with you because oh my I'm a gosh. <laughs> I, I mean, like, you know, you know, every now and then somebody sends cases and you're like, oh, my God, this is my. Did Norm fall down? Sounds like, yeah, he needs to hit the life alert. That was crazy. <laughs> that was the crazy. whole house shit. Yes. Um, anyway, so he sent these amazing cases. There was only one case that I was like, mm, doesn't have enough court stuff. And uh-huh. he even mentioned, I don't think it yeah. has enough court stuff. Yeah. But the craziest part is that it's the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Oh, Archives, yeah. Which I've talked to you about like talk five about. times. Yes. I am dying for them to solve that case for my own selfish reasons. Right. Because that is the craziest story. Yes. And I want to talk about it on the podcast. Yeah. But, like, there's no court stuff. They yeah. didn't find the guys. Yeah. But it's a crazy story. Art anyway. heist. Ugh. Dumbest crime ever. Evidently not, because these dudes stole these, like, Rembrandts and <laughs> I shit. I know. You talked like, about this during the Mona oh, Lisa. This so was your, good. This was your uh, your reasoning why the, stealing the Mona Lisa was such a genius crime. I disagree. I didn't, I didn't say it was a genius crime. I said you can... Get a lot of money. How do you know? How do you know those guys have a lot of money? How do you know? Because I'm the one who stole the stuff. <laughs> They're probably the- just stuck with all these fucking famous paintings and they're holed up in some cabin somewhere hating their fucking lives. Or, looking at amazing art, though. Or, yeah, they're drinking some wine and <laughs> looking at a Rembrandt and what are you and I doing right now? <laughs> Maybe. 
maybe life is good. So anyway, thank you, Adam and Connor, uh, for this suggestion. This is the case of Clark Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. Do you know this I know a tiny bit of it. I knew a tiny bit, too. Yeah. This is so good. Yeah. And right off the bat, I'm going to say that the vast majority of this, before we kind of get into the court stuff, comes from an excerpt. I think it's... So the article is in Vanity Fair, and it's called The Man in the Rockefeller Suit. It's by Mark Seal, and I believe he wrote a book about this. So this might be an excerpt from the book. But anyway, beautifully written, really well-researched, such a great article. This first part is just basically me uh, telling you about Mark's article. So here we go. Love it. It's a lovely day in July of 2008. Clark Rockefeller is walking out of the Algonquin Club in Boston. And in case you couldn't tell already, Clark Rockefeller was an impressive man. Yeah, fancy as fuck. Uh Uh-huh. Walking out of an impressive place. Also fancy as fuck. Very good. He and his seven-year-old daughter, who he nicknamed Snooks, were walking toward Boston Common. He had her up on his shoulders, and they were pumped because they were going to go ride the swan boats in the public garden. Mm. As he walked, people everywhere seemed to know him and admire him. They were like, hey, Mr. Rockefeller, which made sense. They were in his old stomping grounds. They were walking through Beacon Hill, which is a nice-ass area of Boston. I lived there when I was in college. You did not. There's no way. (laughs) I mean, you did. True facts, you went to college in Boston. Yeah, but no. I do not believe that you lived in fancy Boston. No, I walked by Beacon Hill. I was like, (laughs) whoa. (laughs) So they're walking through Beacon Hill. Like I said, amazing area of Boston. And Clark Rockefeller had lived there for a while in a $2.7 million four-story home. Mm, Sounds like a dump. Oh, yeah. You'd hate it. It's terrible. (laughs) But that was before his divorce. Mm. When he was married to Sandra Boss, his daughter's mom, they really lived it up. Sandra was super fancy. She went to Stanford, and she got her MBA from Harvard, and she had an amazing job at the Kinsey Corporation. They were the ultimate power couple. He was a Rockefeller with a posh accent who could talk about basically anything. And he had a massive art collection. And she was a smarty pants with a great job and a million dollar plus per year salary. Mm-hmm. One source I saw said two million a year. Another said 1.4. Whatever. You get the idea. They were doing fine. Yeah. But then things went sour. Sandra divorced him. She got the house in Beacon Hill. And she got their other house in New Hampshire. Oh, shit. I know. I imagine if Zach got both of your <sighs> houses. <laughs> Plus, she got custody of their daughter. Sandra scooped her up and moved with her to London, which meant Clark only got three eight-hour visits per year. What? And on top of that, a social worker had to be with them the whole time. Oh, my gosh. Where's the social worker right now? Oh, with them. Oh. Right there with them. Is she going to ride the swan boat too? He, maybe he would perch, <laughs> perch <laughs> on, on the neck of the swan. <laughs> Clark was down, but he wasn't out. He still had his important name. He still had his important friends. Mm. And he got a big chunk of change in the divorce. How much? I believe it was 
$800,000. So the father, the daughter, and the social worker are all walking down this very nice street in Boston. And all of a sudden, a black SUV limo pulls up. (gasps) Clark was not surprised by this. He'd arranged for the limo to come and meet them at that very spot. He, he'd told the driver ahead of time, Hey, I knew, I need you to take myself and my daughter to Newport, Rhode Island. And we've got a lunch date there with a senator's son. You know, no big deal. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, when you come pick us up, I'm going to have my really clingy friend there. Could you make sure that my clingy friend does not get into the limo with us? And the limo driver is like, yeah, hey, dude, you're paying 3000 bucks for this limo oh ride. Oh, my gosh. You, I'll do whatever you need. You want this guy to not get in the car? I'll make sure he does not get in the car. So the limo driver pulls up, and sure enough, there are the three of them. And Clark pushes the social worker out of the way, grabs his daughter, and pulls her into the limo. He does this so quickly that she hits her head on the doorframe. And Clark yells, go, go, go. And the driver goes. But the social worker had a hold of the <gasps> door handle. So he held on to it. But the limo obviously was going. And eventually the social social worker fell down. Yeah. A few minutes pass and Clark says, you know what? Pull over. I'm going to take my daughter to Massachusetts General Hospital. Just to go get her head checked out. Mm-hmm. I'll take a cab. In the meantime, you wait for me in that parking lot over there. And the limo driver is like, all okay, right, I'll sit yeah. for $3,000. Sure. Yeah. So now Clark and Snooks are in a cab, but they don't go to the hospital. They go to the Boston Sailing Center, where a friend was waiting for him. They get into the friend's Lexus, and, the Cl- and Clark tells the friend, hurry, we've got a train to catch, and then we got to get on a boat headed to Long Island. Come on, lickety-split, let's go. She's like, okay. So she takes off. Soon, they're in Manhattan. The traffic is terrible by Grand Central Terminal. And at that point, Clark just grabs Snooks, throws an envelope full of cash at his friend, and leaves. No goodbye, no thank you, no nothing. Just boom. Mm -hmm. Then the woman's cell phone rang. It was her friend calling to ask if she'd seen the Amber Alert that just went out. Apparently, Clark Rockefeller had just abducted his daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. And she had helped him do it. Mm-hmm. Back in Boston, Sandra Boss, Clark's ex-wife, gets word that her shithead ex-husband has taken off with her daughter. And she's distraught. But the, Bo- the Boston police were doing everything they could. They were like, okay, we need any information you can give us. What's his driver- driver's license number? And Sandra says, he doesn't have a driver's license. What? And- I mean, that's not unusual. I was going to say. That's fine with public transport. But you have like a state-issued ID. Do you? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, okay, um, do you know if he has a social security number? What's that? She says, no. No, he doesn't have one? Or maybe, no, I don't know. Okay. And they're like, uh. How long were they married? I think. 12 years. I could give you Zach's right now. Really? Yes. You have his social security number memorized? Yes. 
Oh, all right. Wife of the year. Fill out forms and shit. You know, insurance forms, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. No? All right. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have norms memorized? No. Really? I'm proud I have my own memorized. Is it weird that I have said? I don't know. No, it's probably not We need people to weigh in. Am I a super wife or is this, you know, just kind of expected of your... Tell us if Zach you know Zach does it. not have mine memorized. I can tell you that for sure. Wow. He must be an awful husband. <laughs> he's, a great, he's a great husband. I fill out all the forms in our house. <laughs> you know what? Norm's the one who fills out all you the bet, forms. I bet Norm knows yours. Hey, Norman. Yeah? Do you know my social security number by heart? Absolutely not. Okay. Oh, all right. Just making sure. Okay. Gee, where was I? Okay. So then Boston police are like, all right, is he on your tax returns? Surely we can find some information that way. She says no. What? Yep. So he has no identity. They went through everything. But Clark Rockefeller... Didn't have any IDs. He didn't exist. <laughs> Pretty soon, the FBI swoops in. Special Agent Noreen Gleason immediately calls the Rockefellers. And they're like, uh, yeah, we don't know that guy. Yeah, Clark who? Uh-huh. <laughs> they reach out to Clark's friends. And they all seem to know where he was headed. But they all named different places. Hmm. Peru, Alaska, the Bahamas. Everybody had a different answer. Because they'd all been told different things. Of course they had. Mm-hmm. He may be fake, but he doesn't sound dumb. No. So investigators spent a ton of time on these bullshit leads. And they were like, damn it all to hell. This dude could be anywhere. The only thing we really know about him is that he had a ton of cash, and that's it. We don't even know his name. Oh, my gosh. But they kept talking to Clark's friends, And finally, they hit a break. The night before Clark kidnapped his daughter, he'd gone over to a friend's house. They'd had some wine. And luckily, the friend hadn't gotten around to washing the wine glasses. (gasps) DNA! (laughs) So the FBI was able to get a set of fingerprints off the wine glass. They got the fingerprints, sent them off to the lab in Virginia. Meanwhile, they released Clark Rockefeller's picture to the media. They were hoping someone somewhere would recognize him. And boy, did they. (gasps) A lot of people knew him as Clark Rockefeller. But some people knew him as Chris Gerhardt, Mm. a film student from the University of Wisconsin. Also, Christopher C. Crow, a TV producer and former Wall Street investment firm guy. Also, Christopher... Chichester. Chichester? Chichester? I don't know. I think it's Chichester, but that's a dumbass name. <gasps> Brandy, I apologize to all of Brandy, our Chichesters listening. He made in right these now. names up himself. <laughs> <laughs> that dude, sounds like he like was caught on the spot and had to come up with a name. And he was like, yeah, it's Christopher Ch- Ch- Chichester. <laughs> okay, so apparently. That's 100% what that sounds like. No, no, no. Here's the thing. Apparently, well, no, I'll get. I'm going to forget to get to it later. Someone he knew back from where he really grew up 
had that last name. Mm. So he didn't like make it up out of thin air. Mm. So Christopher Chichester was a dude who'd lived in L.A. in the 80s and was definitely a descendant of British royalty. So put some respect on that name. I'm sorry. And he was suspected in the murder of two people. Ooh. Yeah. Investigators were freaking out. They'd been looking into this guy for like a week, and the more information they got, the more scared they were for the little girl. Yeah. And frankly, for anyone who came into contact with this guy. Well, and like, he could be fucking anywhere by now. Yeah. Yeah. And he had the resources, and obviously, this was not Uh, his first rodeo. Yeah, to pass as anybody, yeah. Then they got the results back from the Virginia lab. Clark Rockefeller was not Clark Rockefeller. No. He was actually Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. He was a German immigrant who'd come to the U.S. in 1978. Soon, they began to piece together this guy's life story. Oh, my gosh. Are you ready? Should I buckle up? Buckle up! Click. As a child, Christian was seen as kind of odd. His dad was an artist and his mom was a seamstress. Apparently, he spent a lot of time fantasizing Mm -hmm. as a kid. One day, he met an American family on a train and he hit it off with them. And they said, hey, if you're ever in America, give us a call. We'd love to see you again. So what does he do? He goes to America. Shows up on their doorstep unannounced. He's like, like, hello, I'm here. Hey, bud. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. What's up? <laughs> Came all the way here, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, and did not have a place to stay. So, oh of course, you know, he shows up to the family's doorstep in Meriden, Connecticut, 1978, and he lived with them for a while. Then he moved to Berlin, Connecticut, with the Savio family. He told the Savios that he was an exchange student. At this point, he started to change personas a bit. He started wearing really tight clothes and white sunglasses, and he told everyone that his dad was an industrialist who did something with Mercedes. Hmm. He also watched a ton of Gilligan's Island. How tight are the clothes? The article said, like, European tight. Hmm. So, like, on a woman probably wouldn't, like, you wouldn't think much of it, but, you know, like... We're talking moose knuckle tight? Oh, Brandy, this is a family show. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking pretty darn tight. And it's the 70s, you know. Okay. All right. You need to look at some pictures of men in tight clothing? I or don't. I'm just trying to get a mental picture here mm-hmm. of, I don't even know what his name is at this point. <laughs> Neither does he, really. <laughs> so he's like, he's wearing his tight clothes, making up some story about how, you know, his parents are rich. And he's just watching the shit out of Gill- mm-hmm. Gilligan's Island. He became obsessed with the character Thurston Howell III. It's Thurston Howell. Howell, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> he played the millionaire. Yes. Um, while I was researching this, I did take a time out to listen to the Gilligan's Island theme song. <laughs> um, apparently, he was so obsessed with Thurston Howell. The third, Mm -hmm. that he started mimicking the character's speech patterns. Oh, lover. 
Is that how he sounded? Yeah. Okay, I started to actually watch an episode because I wanted to hear him talk, but then I was like, I don't, I, yeah. you know. I'm glad I have you here. Yeah. Around this time, he adopted a new name. Chris Kenneth Gerhardt. Mm. And Chris, even though he was just some kid sleeping on a couch in Connecticut, thought mighty highly of himself. He'd wake up and be like, why is my breakfast not already prepared? Oh, my God. And why has my clothing not been laundered no. for me? Oh, my gosh. This next part will shock you. He wore out his welcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Imagine that. Next, Chris moved on to the University of Wisconsin. While he was there, he called the Savios and was like, you know, I think I'm going to vote for Ronald Reagan in the next election. And they were like, honey, you're not an American citizen. You can't vote in the presidential election. Yeah, no. And he's like, yeah, we'll see. (laughs) At this point, he found this 22-year-old named Amy Dunkey, who he did not know well. And they went to the courthouse and got married. Hmm. They had a really great marriage. I bet. Just kidding. He (laughs) took off, like, immediately. Yeah. He went to L.A. with a new name, Christopher Chichester. Hmm. Which he did not make up on the spot, I'm sorry to tell you. I just, I... I'm choosing not to believe that. Okay. I think it's a totally a Uvagenia Doubtfire situation. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out, Christopher Chichester was a master networker. He'd go to all the local social clubs, went to all the right churches, he crashed weddings, and all the while he developed a really high-class accent had great manners, had an amazing wardrobe, and he would constantly go to the library and just read up on all these topics. Mm-hmm. Also, he got his hair cut every two weeks. Mm-hmm. What do you think of that? That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean that's correct? It never looks like it grows if you get it cut every two weeks. It looks the same all the time. Uh-huh. Always perfect. Yeah. I've got a couple of guys that have standing appointments that come every two weeks. Are they con artists? No, they're all pretty nice. Well, this guy seemed pretty nice. Do they have impeccable (laughs) manners, Brandy? None of them are Rockefellers. Ask them what their social security numbers are. And if they don't tell you, you'll know they're a con artist. (laughs) The ladies loved him, especially the old ladies. Ooh, yeah, probably. He was a big hand kisser. They were just really charmed by him. Don't give me that face. I don't like that at all. Did he only kiss big hands? (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine, like, all these kind of wealthy old ladies. This guy comes out. He's like, oh, yes, uh, hello. He's got his little fancy posh accent and his nice little clothes. And he's, like, smooching all over their hands. Yeah. Yeah. They were loving it. Loving Loving every minute of it. Yes. He told them he was descended from royalty, and he always had these big calling cards, which read Christopher Chichester, and then in Roman Roman numerals, 13, and then capital B, lowercase t, so 13th baronet. Dumb. Uh, yeah. He also had a picture of the Chichester crest, and I think something in Latin that was like, 
He said it was like his family motto, which yeah, something about thing. faith. You yeah. Know. Mm-hmm. What's your family motto? I don't have one. Mine is shut up and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> By this point, he's in all the important clubs. He knows all the important people. And some of these VIPs are like, please, will you meet my daughter? You are so wonderful. I think you two would hit it off. Not Everyone was charmed by Chris. I bet they weren't. Most people were, though. There were definitely select people who could see through the bullshit. I guarantee it. Here's what pisses me off, though. So I read a bunch of stuff for this, and in hindsight, you get a bunch of people who are like, well, I I always knew that something was off. Well, you didn't fucking say shit, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Some people, I believe, but, but like... This dude was in all of the most elite clubs. He was getting his ass kissed by everyone. Mm-hmm. And so all these people who are coming forward now like, oh, well, I knew because of this, that, and the other thing. No, you fucking yeah. didn't. Yeah. Anyway. Carol Campbell was set up for a lunch date with Chris. She was expecting to go out with this fancy pants nephew of Lord Mountbatten. But dude, Lord Mountbatten, who's apparently a real guy, (laughs) (laughs) the horse just. But this dude shows up in a beige Datsun. She's like, "This guy's a fucking dork." Oh my god! And the inside of his Datsun was covered in yellow Post-it notes with notes he wrote to himself. That's dumb. She came home and she was like, "Mom." That guy is lying. He is creepy. And by the way, their lunch date, they did not eat lunch. They just went around, and he took her on errands and just talked about himself the whole time. Oh, gosh. Can you fucking imagine? No. I'd be like, please drive this thing off a cliff. This is <laughs> but Carol was like the only person with spidey senses in this whole story. Soon, Chris got his own TV show on public access. Probably because he told everyone he was in film school at USC. Apparently he was auditing some classes, but obviously he like way overblew it. He was like, oh yes, I'm doing all this fancy pants <laughs> stuff. Blah, 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 blah. The show was called Inside San Marino. He was the producer. And even though almost no one watched this show, he always got these really important people to come be on it. Oh my gosh. So Chris is like hobnobbing with all the important people in town and okay some articles said said like the vanity fair article was like look in this town you know you kind of fall into three categories there's like the super rich the okay rich and then you know the the not so rich yeah and he was in the not so rich part other articles were like yeah he was in this really nice area i imagine that even in the not-so-rich area of this place, it was probably pretty nice. Oh, yeah. But, you know. Whatever. Yeah. So he's in, just so you know, he's he's in that area, living in the guest house of Ruth Didi Sohus. S-O-H-U-S? Sohus? That sounds right. He did not pay rent. Mm. Probably. A Didi, huh? A Didi, yeah. Probably mm. kissed her hand and that was enough. Mm. Here's where the trouble begins. Chris is living with Dee Dee, who was an alcoholic and a bit of a recluse. Mm-hmm. And then her son, John, and his wife, Linda, come back home and move in with Dee Dee. I think they'd been married for like two years at this point. And for whatever reason, in this article, 
Um, like everybody feels the need to mention that John was kind of a nerd and Linda was super hot. Everyone's like, I don't get it. But anyway, so there you have a picture of them. Linda was big boned and attractive oh. and tall. Uh, John, a little shorter, curly haired. Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Hmm. At some point in 1985, something went very wrong. John and Linda went missing. They told their friends that they got these really important jobs in the U.S. government and that they'd been gone for two weeks. But then eight weeks passed and nobody heard from them. Eventually, Linda's sister called Dee Dee. And Dee Dee Did was- he murder them? <laughs> that's, that's code for stay tuned. Uh. Dee Dee was like, oh, they're on a top secret government mission. And Linda's sister was like, uh, okay. So Linda says, Linda's family obviously calls the police at that point because they're like, bullshit, yeah. government secret mission. And Dee Dee told the police, look, I've, I've got a source. It's okay. I've got a source. The source is telling me things are fine. At some point, the family gets like a postcard, supposedly, from Linda and John. Yeah. But then five minutes, five minutes, five months later, John and Linda have been missing. Dee Dee realized. How long have they been missing five months later? (laughs) I tried to keep going. It's like, at some point, you just need to stop, (laughs) rewind. Okay. But then, five months after Linda and John had gone missing. Boy, I said that so great. Dee Dee realized she'd been had. Oh, no. Christopher, who had, of course, been her source, had taken off. Uh-huh. Fast forward to 1994. There are new owners of the home where Dee Dee and John and Linda and what's-his-face Chris had lived. And they decide, hey, we should put in a pool in the backyard. Oh, God. Who oh, no. They uncover bodies. They start digging. It's like poltergeist. And they found what appeared to be John's remains. Yep. This actually became an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. But it wasn't really a mystery as to who did it. One of the neighbors came forward and was like, uh, Chris asked to borrow my chainsaw during the time frame when John and Linda went missing. And by the way, of course, John's body was found in parts. Thank you. That's important to know, Kristen. Well, didn't you get the... I mean, okay. Anyway. <laughs> Then Chris's friend came forward and was like, yeah, he invited me over to play Trivial Pursuit. Ooh. And when I came over, his backyard was all dug up. Yeah, and there were body parts everywhere. Well, she didn't mention that. She goes, I thought it was super weird, so I asked him about it. And he was like, oh, you know, we're having plumbing issues. Uh-huh. Everyone Ooh, knew. One. Trivial Pursuit. <laughs> <laughs> Just spat everywhere. <laughs> the correct answer to that is, who cares, Brandy? <laughs> Brandy, you lost. (laughs) I wasn't even playing. (laughs) Everyone knew Chris had to be behind the murders. And police had figured out his real identity. But no one knew where he was. Yeah, where is he? Let's go back to 1988. We're in Greenwich, Connecticut. And Chris is now Christopher Crow. Is it not Greenwich, Connecticut? Oh. Well... Green, as in green in color, uh-huh. which, 
W-I-S. It's Greenwich? I think it's pronounced Greenwich. I, oh, shit. <laughs> Should we Google this? Yeah, let's Google it. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard of Greenwich, Connecticut. I've heard of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm pretty sure it's Greenwich. I think you're right. Greenwich. Greenwich. <laughs> <laughs> this is so weird because I was a National Merit Scholar. <laughs> Okay, so Greenwich, Connecticut. Sorry, everyone in the East Coast right now is like, the fuck? Fucking Midwest trash. <laughs> Thought she said she went to Boston for college. <laughs> <laughs> so now he's Christopher Crow. In your defense, there's a fucking W in there. Yeah. If they didn't want me to mispronounce it, then they should have spelled it. Okay, what is it? Greenwich? G-R-I-N-I-C-H. Greenwich. <laughs> So he's impressing the pants off of everyone. He goes to all the right clubs, charms all the right old ladies, gets himself a Burberry raincoat, the works. He also... Big fan of Burberry. I know you are. (laughs) Around this time, he also, like... So everyone talks about how how fabulous his wardrobe was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now his fake initials are CCC. Mm -hmm. So literally every item of clothing from, like, socks to pajamas... CCC. Hmm. Oh, fancy. Ooh. Soon he gets a job working for venture capitalist Stan Phelps. Christopher totally looked the part. He was very flashy, constantly bragged about his time in the film industry in L.A. Th- this part is amazing to me because he goes on this string of like, Really high-powered jobs. I mean, co- it, that's so easily verifiable, but probably he just spilled his bullshit so well that nobody even bothered to look into it. And I can't remember if this was the job I'm thinking of, but at some point, like, you know, basically what would happen is he'd get hired by someone who was just charmed by him and was too lazy to check references or mm-hmm. check anything, really. And then he'd come and be in charge of people, and the people he was in charge of were like, holy shit, I mean, he's got this posh accent and this these nice clothes, but he doesn't know what he's doing. Wow. So, he was constantly bragging about his time in the film industry in L.A., but someone must have thought he was full of shit because they grabbed his job application where he'd listed his social security mm-hmm. number and ran a background check. They discovered that he had used the social security number of David Berkowitz, a.k.a. So the Sun Sam! Yes! <laughs> <laughs> so they were like, um, you're fired. Yeah. Goodbye. But don't worry. Christopher bounced back. They just fired him? They didn't, like, call the police? Evidently not. Which, why the fuck wouldn't you? You should! My theory is at a certain level, and these fancy pants organizations are like, we don't want the bad publicity that could oh, come. Oh, you're probably from, right. Yeah, that's so probably exactly like, Let's it. pretend this never happened. Yeah. Let's pretend we're not idiots who hired yep. a guy with a nice wardrobe. Yep. So Christopher bounced back. This time, he got a job as a vice president at Nico Securities? Nico Securities? N-I-K-K-O? His base salary was $150,000. And by the way, we're talking like late, early 90s, late 80s. Wow. His job was huge. He was overseeing sales of corporate bonds, um, 
which evidently is pretty hard to fake because he was quickly fired there. He too. was terrible at it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, I, I mean, evidently it's the kind of thing, you know, if you don't know your shit, it's yeah. pretty obvious. Yeah. Don't worry, Brandy. Don't worry. He bounced back again. Oh my gosh. This is really a story about grit and persistence. <laughs> this time he got another super prestigious job at Kidder Peabody and Company. Around this time, police start circling in on him. And I kind of had trouble figuring out why, but I think it has something to do with John and Linda's truck. Because for some reason, he kept that truck for longer than he should have. And I think he tried to sell it. And Uh so, like, police are starting to circle in on him. But at any rate, someone must have tipped him off or, like, somehow he realized what was happening. Because Chris goes into work and he's like... Oh, everyone, sad story. My parents are missing in Afghanistan. Gotta run. Bye. Miss you. Love you. Toodles. What? It's the classic my parents are missing in (laughs) Afghanistan story, Brandy. (laughs) Do you remember how terrified I was when (laughs) DP took off for Afghanistan? (laughs) This time, he reemerges in their early 90s. And he was none other than Clark Rockefeller. (gasps) He was back to his old tricks. He went to all the right places, met all the right people. And boy, the name helped him out tremendously. Yeah, because people are like, like the. Like, oh, it's. We are all so stupid. Yeah. I mean, they were so charmed by the name and so like. So many people just felt privileged to even be talking oh, to Oh, yeah. Them. And I think at some point, like, just because of the name, like, people would be less likely to... Say what you're about to say. Look yes. into him. Uh-huh. Think anything negative about him. You, it's like, that would be improper because he's a Rockefeller. That's exactly right. Yeah. The other thing is, obviously, when you're on the run like this, you don't want to tell people many details. Yeah. So... He chose Rockefeller as a last name. And so when he was super weird and private and, like, didn't want to tell people mm-hmm. details of his background, they were like, oh, oh yes. you know, he's he's been through a lot. You know, his family, you know, oh, mm-hmm. I shouldn't pry. It would be rude. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to respect his privacy. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Wow. So. Somehow. That's some fucking balls, man. Yes. The balls on this yeah. guy. I mean, like, I'm still stuck on like the job interview thing. I'm thinking, my God, how how easy is that? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, to go into these super prestigious firms. No idea. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yes. He wasn't just getting entry-level jobs. He was getting like vice president of what's its butt. Yeah. You know, all kinds of ugh. I don't get it. That's nuts. But then again, I don't have anything monogrammed, so maybe... Me either. Maybe that's part of the problem. You have stuff that's monogrammed. What? Excuse me! You have to! What do I have that's monogrammed? I just feel like you've got to have some kind of makeup bag that says... I do not. I have lots of things that say Egan. Okay. Like... Signs like and shit driver's in my house. License. Yeah, my driver's license. <laughs> I, no, I don't have anything monogrammed. Oh. Ooh, that's a fat lie. <gasps> yeah, booyah. I, my keychain has my monogram oh, on it. Damn right. I knew you. I knew you had something monogrammed. How dare you lie? Okay. 
so some somehow he gets. Are you saying that I? Are you calling me uppity, Kristen, by saying I no. have something monogrammed? No, not at all. I'm just saying because you it's a glitter pineapple. Like- for the record, <laughs> I'm just saying you seem like the type to have some hmm. monogram stuff. Hmm. Sounds like an insult. <laughs> I know it does. The more I say it, the more it sounds like I'm, I'm jabbing you somehow. <laughs> but I just think like. Yeah, you seem like the type to have something great. Thank you. I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> Fuck. Sorry, it's not. It's not meant to be a dig. It's meant to be like I just. I see certain women. I'm like, yeah, She's helping it, Kristen. <laughs> You're a giant asshole. So <laughs> uh, okay. Somehow he gets this very impressive art collection. Ooh. And. A Gordon Setter named Yates, which I had to look it up, but it's one of those fancy pants dogs that has like the long hair. They're, I'm not a fan. I literally had no idea what those words were. Really? <laughs> I was what? like, what kind of item would he have gotten that comes with a name? <laughs> <laughs> You're uh, no, never not familiar with the Gordon <laughs> Setters? A Gordon Setter, huh? Yeah, look it up. It's a very fancy pants dog. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that's what that was called. I've seen that dog before. Hmm. I don't like all that hair. I'm not a fan either. I mean, this it looks cute when they don't have that belly hair, but when that belly hair is hanging down, what, I mean, what are you supposed to do with all that? Wax it. <laughs> is that why you shave feet? <laughs> Should I tell that story? <laughs> You've already told it. Oh, I have. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, I've got 10 stories. And, you know, <laughs> we're on our 55th episode now. <laughs> People so, know that you like peanuts crotch shaved. Oh my god, don't say that. <laughs> if that sounds weird and out of context, you just gotta listen to all the episodes because I don't know which one I told that story. I don't have any idea. But I know you've told it. So uh blah blah blah. To those who knew him, Clark was an eccentric, kind of a strange, just super wealthy guy who was descended from one of America's richest families. He walked around with this little radio thing all the time, and he'd tell people he had to check in to let security know where he was. At oh, all times. that's dumb. He ate cucumber and watercress sandwiches on Pepperidge Farm bread, no crusts. Mm. Didn't trust restaurants. Uh, he ate Pepperidge Farm cookies, the Nantucket kind, which I love. I don't it. know which one that is. Oh, that's the one. Oh, hold on. Hold on. I'm getting so hungry just talking about it. Okay. Yeah, it's the kind with the dark chocolate chunks. I think they've got like the macadamia nuts in them. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Oh, it just says chocolate chunks. You know, I just like cookies. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's just dark chocolate. Mm. That's dumb. That's just a dark chocolate cookie. It's not dumb. Okay, <laughs> next time. I'm going to eat a bunch of Nantucket cookies in front of you. Oh, I would be sad. I'd be like, you want, oh, wait, no, you think they're dumb. (laughs) (laughs) No, but if you're going to go with a Pepperidge Farm cookie, don't you do the the Milano cookies? 
I mean, there's not a Pepperidge Farm cookie that I don't like. They're so, they're lighter than air. They're, they're so, so good. good. <laughs> but I do love. Oh God, I want some cookies so bad now. Okay, so he did the Pepperidge Farm bread, the Pepperidge Farm cookies. I don't think he was sponsored by Pepperidge Farm, but we have no idea. <laughs> every every article of clothing at Pepperidge Farm stitched into it. <laughs> then he'd wash it all down with. Harvey's Bristol Cream Sherry, which I... Never heard of it. Yeah, no. Great. Good for him. So he's this total weirdo uh, with a fantastic name, fancy dog, and a $1 billion art collection. He gave people just enough information. How did he get a billion dollar art collection? You want me to tell you? Yeah. Is it all fake? Or is it all real? And he stole it. someone... It's, I saw conflicting information on this. One person said they were all fakes. They were just derivatives. Yeah. But because... Of who he was. People didn't question yeah. him. They were like, oh, this is so real. Yeah. Another person said that like he would get them in estate sales for mm-hmm. not much money. I wonder if it was kind of a mishmash. Yeah, it's probably both. Yeah. A little bit of both. He gave people just enough information to make them think he was very important but he would get super guarded and obsessed with privacy anytime people asked too many questions. And so they would always back off. Around this time, at church, he met a woman named Julia Boss. She, <gasps> Spoiler alert, they get married. No. What? No. Julia Boss. Oh. She introduced him to her twin sister, Sandra Boss. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> They look exactly the same. How am I supposed to tell them apart? <laughs> so, you know, Julia's like, do you want to meet my sister? He's like, absolutely. In fact, I would like to throw a party for her. What? Yeah. You know, anytime you hear about a new person, you're like, I want to throw a party no, for them. No, that's so dumb. That's the weirdest thing. Well, when they just not... have watercress sandwiches and, and Pepperidge pepper- Farm cookies. Oh, yeah. And you walk in, you're like, oh, where are the Milanos? These are just the Nantucket <laughs> kind. So he throws this party in his apartment, and he threw a clue party based on the board game. Okay, I would go to that fucking party. I know you would. I know. (laughs) When I was writing this, I was like, Brandy (laughs) Pathovic. So he played the role of Mr. Body. Of course he did. The millionaire host. Yeah. What role did he give to uh, this lovely lady? Uh, Miss Scarlet? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) These two were smitten immediately okay so this is where the van okay now i want to go to a clue party i know like (laughs) should we throw one i think it would be fun we have to wait until we someone's like do you want to meet my so-and-so we're like yes Yes, and we'll throw them a party yes and i will you are colonel mustard sorry norman (laughs) these are the rules of the game what if we threw a party and i was like okay i will be miss scarlet Kristen, you are colonel mustard (laughs) So this is where the Vanity Fair article, which I loved, gets super interesting and super bitchy. Not that the writer was bitchy, but like, oh, wait, we're not to the bitchy part yet. I'm sorry. Uh, So it talks about Sandra and Julia's relationship. Mm. So they're twin sisters. They're both brilliant. They were both National Merit Scholars. For undergrad, Julia went to Yale. Sandra went to Stanford. So now Sandra's a Harvard MBA. And Julia is engaged. And again, super duper unhealthily competitive. Mm -hmm. 
The two sisters competed with each other constantly. Sandra was described as very intelligent, but kind of lacking socially. She was always, someone described her as always kind of being on the outside looking in. Yeah. But she fit in with Clark. Yeah. Sandra was completely sucked in by Clark. He spoke tons of languages. He knew all the the obscure novelists that she knew, which, like, I'm going to be a snot now. So they talk about obscure novelists and Uh stuff. Like, her favorite author was Edith Wharton, which Edith Wharton is not obscure. obscure. She won the Pulitzer. She's the first woman who won the Pulitzer Prize. Like, everybody calm down. Anyway. Book snob. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cookie snob. (laughs) Everybody's fucking heard of Edith Wharton. I'm just saying, when they say obscure novelist, like, if you won the Pulitzer, you're officially not obscure. Do you think you're a fair judge of what an obscure novelist is? Don't you think you have more knowledge of novelists than the average person? Not about obscure ones. I read popular fiction. And, okay, I see what you're saying. I do do read a lot. Yeah. But when someone's like, oh, I'm into obscure novelists, I'm like, oh, shit, I'm in over my head with this person. Because, like, I I don't read the, the old stuff for the most part. But, of course, I read Edith Wharton because she's super popular and she was really good. Okay. Not obscure. Okay. I sound like the biggest asshole. Listen, you're the one with the monogram keychain. So who's the snob now? <laughs> Couple fucking snobs covering this podcast. Good lord. She loved that he spoke a ton of languages, fluent in German, if you can believe it. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Weird, because he's from Germany. Hey, whoa. No, no. He had this really compelling life story. He wasn't that into money. Parents disappeared in Afghanistan. (laughs) (laughs) No, they died in Connecticut. Oh, that's right. His mom was a a former child star. But more on that later. Oh, great. For now, you just need to know that, you know, he'd once, when he was growing up, been super rich, obviously. But his father, who died tragically in Connecticut, which is why he never wanted to go to Connecticut ever <laughs> under any circumstances, you know, because of the bad memories, yeah. not because the Connecticut because police, the police were looking were after for him. him. Yeah. Um, you know, his father had been left completely broke by a lawsuit, which explained why, you know, for a Rockefeller, he didn't seem to have just a ton of money, yeah. you know. Okay, but got it. It, it. it made him a better person, Brandy. Mm. Taught him mm. some things about what's important in mm. life. Grew from it. Soon they got married. You know, his parents were dead, obviously, so they couldn't make it to the ceremony. Neither um, could anybody else he'd ever Well, known. now, hold on. So he invited the Rockefellers. Um, but at the last minute, you know how, like, drama happens around a wedding. And so, like, you get angry and you disinvite all your relatives. Oh, yeah, so that's, okay. that's what happened. The Rockefellers were invited. Um, he disinvited them at the last minute. Don't worry. He he assured everyone, you'll meet all the rest of the family later, you know. Yeah, um, okay. sure, sure. Brandy, could you curb some of this skepticism? (laughs) Families can be so tough. (laughs) So they got married. But some say the marriage wasn't legit. So Sandra filled out everything. Well, yeah, if he put down fucking Clark Rockefeller on the marriage certificate, it's not legit. Well, and Clark never filed the paperwork. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, because they would be like, Clark Rockefeller, that's not a real like, fucking person. Who? Yeah. <laughs> At any rate, now Sandra and Clark are the ultimate power couple. Mm. He's got a job running this wonderful company that advises third world countries on their finances. And, you know, obviously, Brandy, don't make that face. That's not a real job. It's a... It's a wonderful job, and he is so nice that he doesn't accept a salary from that because it would be wrong to accept a salary from these countries that just need his help so badly. He has no fucking job. <laughs> now, Sandra had an actual job. Yeah, I bet she did. I bet she worked really fucking hard. Yes, she did. She worked really, really hard. Um, she worked at the consulting firm McKinsey & Company, which... I didn't go into all the details because this script is huge already. Yeah. But McKinsey and Company, have you heard of it? No. They're they're this consulting firm. They're like, they've got former CIA people. Um, at Excellent. this point, future Enron execs were working there. I mean, they Spoiler have alert. very goes, goes downhill for them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they go. They've got very highly intelligent people working for them. Yeah. You know, blah blah blah. Okay. Sandra rose very quickly through the company, which I assume is pretty unusual and hard to do. Part of that success could have been due to her very hard work, but some people, including Clark, thought it had to do with his good name. One friend said, No! Well... Fucking Clark! I... Okay. I kind of buy it. I, let me read you a quote from her friend. Let me uh, hold on. <laughs> One friend said, "Everybody knew she was married to a Rockefeller, and she could be all modest about it and act like she didn't care, but she cared." I do think that being married to someone who's perceived as important can boost your status with people who are really into that. I'm not. I don't think she would have risen as far as she did by being an idiot. I yeah. think she did work really hard. Yeah. But I think there's a chance that that's right, that maybe his name was an asset. Uh, I, I mean, I imagine it's possible, yeah. This is, okay, this is the part, you know how I was saying earlier, and a certain part it gets bitchy. Yeah. It's not that the article itself is rude, but, you know, I mean, the guy interviewed friends who were like, okay, yeah, I'm going to talk to you anonymously. Uh And I just think after this whole thing went down, people had a serious case of schadenfreude because, like, I think they were maybe a little... Maybe jealous is the right word or something because, you know, she was with this Rockefeller and maybe she did kind of like, yeah, and but I mean, she boy, she got humbled pretty quick. So anyway, I'm going to read you another quote. I was repulsed by the name dropping and the excessive wealth and the khaki pants and the polo shirt. Also, they weren't really people that you wanted to be around. They weren't warm. I think other people were excited to be with a Rockefeller. It didn't matter how awkward it was to be with them. It was worth it because they were Rockefellers. It's about time someone said it about the khaki pants. <laughs> that was the funniest part to me. It's like, khaki pants and polo shirt. Like, that's the best buy uniform. You're also describing the Target uniform. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I saw a couple quotes like this from people who were like... 
I was disgusted by it. And it's like, were you? Were you? Or were you really, like, thinking you were pretty cool to be hanging out with a Rockefeller? Uh-huh. I think that's the real story. Yeah. By this point, point, it's 2000. They've got a ton of friends who all love Clark, but their marriage is starting to crumble. In 2000, Sandra peaced out. By this point, I think they, I think they got married in 95. Mm-hmm. She was like, this dude is controlling and paranoid and abusive. I'm done. Mm-hmm. But he charmed his way back. They got back together, and Sandra became pregnant. And after that, she was like, well, I've got to make this work. Mm-hmm. Around this time, something weird happened involving Clark and some lady at a park. And I wish I had more details on this, but I don't. So... I think maybe he got into an argument or something with a lady at a park. Then the police came to talk to him about it. And afterward, he told Sandra, I want to move. I want to move to Cornish, New Hampshire. Okay. So they did. Which, apparently Cornish is like this really cute, affluent little town. Mm -hmm. Here was the logic. You ready? I am. It was halfway between Sandra's job in Boston... And Clark's job in Canada, where he was leading up a new company, and he was a scientist. Okay. Hey. Clark has no job. He's a scientist. He has no (laughs) job. Where the fuck does he go every day when he's pretending to go to work? That's what I'm wondering. Yeah. Probably to, like, his special little clubs to eat his lunch and stuff. Probably. A few of the people in Cornish almost immediately smelled the bullshit. Mm Mm-hmm. No, this this one I actually believe. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So Clark Rockefeller, almost right off the bat, met Jean Burling, who was a big-time judge. And I think her husband is like a state senator from New Hampshire. So right away, he starts talking down to this super intelligent woman about abstract expressionism. And like, do you know what it is? I'll tell you when it is. Blah, blah, blah. And she's just sitting there like, this guy seems like he is absolutely full of shit. The other thing was, so I'm assuming in this town, you've got all these like people who are legit wealthy, and he's zooming around in a bright yellow Yale baseball hat and a Segway, talking about money, talking about how Britney Spears is coming to his house for dinner, how Stephen Hawking is coming to his house for dinner. And people are just kind of like... Um, we're New England waspy types. We don't, Mm -hmm. we have the money. We don't talk about the Mm -hmm. money. Who the hell are you? A lot of stuff happened. I'm just going to skip over it because I'm going to spend more time on the court stuff. But just know that he was a dick. He pissed people off. Yeah. And the whole time he's talking about how like he gives people the impression. I don't know why this pisses me off more than anything, but like he gives people the impression that he's the one making all the money and Sandra just doesn't yeah. pull in a ton of money from her yeah. job. Like, he's the wealthy one. Now it's 2006. Sandra and Clark move into their sweet home in Beacon Hill in Boston. And Clark tells people that he doesn't have to work anymore because his Canadian jet propulsion company sold to Boeing for a billion dollars. So, okay. you know, he's he's good. And oh, by the way, you know, Sandra makes like 200 grand, 300 grand, not a ton of money, but you know, it's okay. He's a Rockefeller, <laughs> sold his company for a billion dollars. Now he's super dad. Great. You want to hear more? Just 200, 300 thousand dollars a year, huh? Yeah, I mean, it makes you feel sad, right? (laughs) Isn't that funny? How do they even get by on that? (laughs) How do you even live? 
Snooks proved to be a highly intelligent child. The article had all these stories about how smart she is. She is smart, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah. We get it. Yep. He was with her every step of the way. But eventually, Sandra decided that she'd had enough, and she divorced Clark. Their divorce was ugly. Clark panicked. All of a sudden, all of his money was gone. Yeah. He had to say. Well, how does that even fucking work? What do you mean? They weren't really married. I did wonder about that, and I didn't really get a satisfying answer because, like, some lawyers were like, they, they were ne- they, they were never weren't really married. married. He doesn't even really exist. <laughs> how, I mean, my mind just like turns to Jello when I try to imagine what that looks like in a courtroom. Well, but also like, there's common law. Mar- like, yeah, you know, I mean, I get that. I get that there would be some legally binding aspects, but when yeah. you go before a judge for a divorce. And you can't present any information to say who the fuck you are. How does that not just all fall apart? Let's find out, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) So, like I said, Clark is panicking because, uh uh-oh, oh oh, no, Uh, my my poor wife, turns out she's the one with all the money, Uh uh-oh. So... He had to sell all the stuff that he'd acquired over the years. His art collection? Some of it, yes. He told friends... He had to keep the stuff that was stolen or fake, huh? (laughs) He told friends, Sandy only wanted my money. She married me because I'm a Rockefeller. Now she wants everything. No. Did she change her name to Sandra Rockefeller? No. No, she did not. Fuck right off, Clark. Mm Mm-hmm. So Sandra hired a lawyer... But her family didn't like the way things were going. It seemed clear that Clark was doing something fishy with the money. Or that he was maybe taking some of it and hiding it from Sandy because there just wasn't money. Like, that doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense. Sandra's dad, William, took his concerns to Wikipedia. (laughs) I'm not making that up. So... Okay, Clark had told them that his mom was Ann Carter, mm-hmm. the former child star. Who, I don't know who that is, I but anyway, is former child star. And obviously... She probably later went on to star on Mork and Mindy. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Before, after, during, who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but, you know, she had died in Connecticut, right? Yeah. So, William is on Wikipedia, he's on Ann Clark's page, and he's like, wait, hold, she's alive? I thought her name was Ann Carter. Oh, you're right, Ann Carter, sorry. <laughs> So he's, he does this deep dive into Wikipedia, and he comes up with all these facts that run counter to Clark's alternative facts. Uh-huh. And so he calls up Sandra, and he's like, hey, something's going on here. And Sandra's like, okay, Dad, get off Wikipedia. We're hiring a private investigator. Yeah. What the private investigator found was that Clark Rockefeller was not Clark Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. They got into negotiations and basically came to this. Sandra gets almost everything, including, like, the fullest of custody, because we don't know who you really are, but we know you're fucking psycho. And we won't turn you over to authorities. Basically. Yeah. What they said was, in exchange, Clark gets $800,000, and they don't look into his true identity Mm -hmm. even further. Which I, that's, I don't (sighs) like that at all. How could you not look into his true identity? How could you not want to know? Exactly. Exactly. I don't get that at all. Whew. Clark took the deal. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think obviously she... he took the deal because yeah. what the fuck is his other option? Do you think they really didn't look into it? I just I can't. Maybe it was too much. Maybe she didn't want to know. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, that that actually does seem plausible. Yeah. That she's just like this is so horrifying and I terrible. Can't know. I can't. Yeah. Ugh. So Clark took the deal, but his friends say that he instantly regretted it. So uh, the too fucking bad fake Clark Rockefeller like here's what the article said. The article basically said that everything about him was fake except for his love for his daughter. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. I believe that. But you you have created this. Uh-huh. And so this is your choice. Like, But you're trying to bring reality down on a guy who does not deal with reality. <laughs> like, seriously. He's like, I mean, this guy I doesn't mean, do yeah, reality. I get that. But you, he's got he, monogrammed underwear. Let it, let, I mean... Let it all fall apart. Admit your true identity, then, if you want to keep your daughter. Oh, well, or you could just kidnap her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that summer, he kidnapped her. Yes. He evaded investigators for days. And finally, a real estate agent in Baltimore called in with a major tip. He said, hey, I'm looking at that wanted poster. Because, you know, it was everywhere. Yeah. And I think I sold that guy an apartment. Oh, my gosh. In Baltimore, he didn't go very fucking far. I think he, yeah, yeah, you're right. He didn't go far. That's dumb. But then again, like, He's New York dumb. isn't that far from Connecticut. No, but he was going to, like, go to New York and then fly somewhere else. Yeah, but he stayed in New York for forever. And the police in Connecticut had been on to him. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. But now he's got a kid that he's trying to also... Uh-huh. Hide from authorities. There's a fucking Amber Alert out. Yeah. Yeah. He should have left the country. Good advice. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Clark told the real estate agent, my name is Chip Smith and this is my daughter Muffy. (laughs) (laughs) Chip and Muffy. I know. Like, what a stupid name. Oh my gosh. So investigators go to the apartment. And like one place said this was a carriage house, you know, whatever. So yeah. you get the idea. They go there, they look in the windows, they see that sherry drink that he loves oh, yeah. and paintings on the floors, but no movement. Mm-hmm. So they created a ruse. By that point, they knew that he had a yacht docked nearby. Oh my gosh. So they had the manager of the marina call Clark and say, hey, Chip. Your yacht is taking on water. And Chip is like, I'll be there as soon as I can. So he runs out of the house, apartment, carriage house, whatever. And this agent, who was just in plain clothes, goes, hey, Clark, where are you going, Clark? Oh, gosh. And Chip said, I'm going to get a turkey sandwich. And then then he goes, oh, fuck. And then you call me Clark. (laughs) (laughs) And then 20 Armed agents descended upon yeah. him. Assault rifles were everywhere. Other a- agents ran into the house to get Snooks out safely. And luckily, she was fine. Um, you mean Muffy? Yeah, Muffy. God. <laughs> Only name worse than Snooks, yeah. right? I think Snooks is cute. I don't mind Snooks. Muffy. Oof. Oh, yeah. That's, Oof. Mm. Now he's in the FBI's custody. And on August 15th, 2008, they positively ID'd him as Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. <laughs> Sorry. 
Why did we start a podcast when I can't pronounce names? <laughs> his fingerprints his fingerprints matched the prints on that wine glass, and they also matched a latent print on the immigration documents for Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. Mm. And also, they got a little help from Christian's real brother, Alexandra, who was like, oh yeah, that's my brother. Alexandra? <laughs> Alexandra, sorry. His parents are Simon and Ermgard. <laughs> They're not Rockefellers. <laughs> and not a child star that died tragically in Connecticut. No, they're like, for sure they didn't die in Connecticut. You know, we're all over we're here all, in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> so Christian's law. Oh, I'm sorry. Now it's September of 2008. And Christian has a big old list of charges against him. We've got custodial kidnapping, assault, battery, assault with a deadly weapon, and giving a false name to officers following an arrest. No murder? Not yet. Oh, yet. Wait for it. Okay. Wait for it. And I want to say, well, I did not write this down, but I think the judge in this first kidnapping trial was like, don't prejudice the jury with the stuff about the possible murders. Oh, okay. Keep it separate. Got it. So Christian's lawyers were like, Hold up. Wait a minute. This wasn't a kidnapping Mm -hmm. because the divorce order and the custody order weren't valid because Sandra and what's his face. Okay. They got married in a Quaker ceremony. They never took out a marriage license and therefore they were never legally married. Ha 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 ha. What do you think of that? Uh, That's fucking bullshit, but it might have some legal bearing. His lawyer also said that the false name charge was bullshit. Christian had identified as Clark Rockefeller for a very long time. He didn't do anything wrong by saying that his name was Clark Rockefeller. Um. Attorney Stephen Horn said, Horns, H-R-O-N-E-S, that's just begging me to say it wrong, said, I just pronounced Horn! <laughs> you pronounced it! But the R is in the wrong place. It's H-R. That's what I'm saying. It's not pronounced horn. (laughs) (laughs) The DA can call him anything he wants, but he knows himself as Clark Rockefeller. They're just desperate to come up with more charges. Mm, No. Christian went on on the Today Show and told the media that Sandra had known for a very long time that he wasn't really a Rockefeller. She just wanted to keep up appearances. I doubt that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't buy that shit. Yeah, either. I don't either. So Sandra's lawyer jumps in and he's like, hey, everybody, just so you know, that guy is totally full of shit. Maybe don't believe every word he says. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now it's early 2009. Christian has a new defense attorney. And that attorney is like, hello, everyone. We're planning to use the insanity defense. We think we could have... You know, mistaken identity, depression, bipolar disorder, grandiosity. You know, it, it could be a, just a whole bunch of things. Mm-hmm. So the DA is kind of pissed. Yeah. Because the DA is like, well, that's convenient because the kidnapping trial is like right around the corner and I need to find an expert witness. And it's pretty tough to know which expert to pick when you're saying he could have like every disorder under mm-hmm. the sun. During that same hearing, the defense, the defense asked the judge to drop the false name charge. They basically said he'd been using that name for a really long time, and therefore it was not dishonest for him to use it after the, the arrest. But Assistant DA David Deacon said, that's like saying 
if you lie long enough, it becomes yeah, the truth. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly like, that's what not that's how saying. That works. Yeah, it's not at all how that works. Oh, you've been lying for like a decade? Good for you. Now it's true. Yep. <laughs> now you're a Rockefeller. Here's your pot of money. Ultimately, the judge was like, no, we're keeping the false name charge. Yeah. Another month goes by. We've got another hearing. And this time the defense is like, we cannot get a fair trial in Boston. We did some polling and like 70% of people here have heard of the story and like 50% of the people think our guy is guilty. Can we please move this thing out of Boston? Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, please disregard the fact that Christian did interviews with the Today Show and the Boston Globe and a bunch of other media yeah. outlets. Um, he did that with his other attorney. I would not have allowed that. Mm-hmm. Which I've, I've got to say, uh, that was really stupid. Yeah. But I think that just shows his arrogance where he's like, oh, it's OK. I'm just going to talk to everyone and I'm going to con everyone. Yeah. Like, dude, you've been caught. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, the judge decided to keep the trial in Boston. He said, sure, you know, people may have heard about this case, but that doesn't mean that they're no longer impartial. You're just going to have to weed that out. Yep. More time passes. And the prosecutors make a filing, letting the court know that Christian always told Sandra to file her tax returns as though she was single. And later, when her work, you know, she has this very important job, required that a CPA sign off on her taxes, Christian went to the accountant behind Sandra's back and said, oh, um, I think you're confused. I'm not Sandra's husband. I'm her brother. Sandra's single. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Then the defense came in with another filing. They were like, we don't think that the vast majority of the four-hour interrogation... By the way, these filings, they all kind of added up. I was having a tough time figuring oh, yeah. out what order they went in. Yeah. I think I got it. That's Maybe fine. not. Um, he's like... I'd be super pissed if it's not 100% correct. Well, prepare yourself. <laughs> they were like, we don't think that the vast majority of the four-hour interrogation that took place after our client was arrested can be used at trial. Because guess what? He told investigators that he didn't want to talk. But they kept pressing him. And in America, you have the right to remain silent. Mm-hmm. The judge agreed. Yeah. She was like, uh, yeah, he, he said he wanted to remain silent. And you guys just kept talking to him. Wow. I know. But I think that's the right decision. Yeah, I do too. So now we're getting closer to the trial. And the defense came before the judge again. And they said, look, you've got this false name charge, to get, charge against our client. Okay, whatever. We tried to fight that. We lost. But when we go to trial, we want him to be referred to Clark Rockefeller. We want him to be referred to as Clark Rockefeller at trial. Because otherwise, if everyone's calling him Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer, that'll prejudice the jury. It'll hurt his credibility in front of them. No! I agree. Again, it's like, sorry, yeah, too bad. It's not his name. Yeah. Yeah. Again, the DA was like, no. Yeah. He created that name out of whole cloth. He, he's not entitled yeah. to that name. So thank God the judge sided with the prosecution. He was like, we're going to refer to him based on the name that was used in the indictment. Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer. Finally, in late May of 2009, the kidnapping trial began. Mm-hmm. The prosecution and defense started with a lot of the same stuff. They both said, yep, he kidnapped his daughter. They said, 
Yep, he's not who he said he was. What they disagreed on was whether he should be held responsible for his actions. Mm -hmm. In opening arguments, the defense said that Christian suffered from a long-standing mental illness. He said that losing custody of his daughter made Christian suffer a psychotic break. He believed that she was in danger and needed to be saved, and that's why he did what he did. Mm. Prosecutors were like, no. No. He's sane, and he is calculating. He planned this kidnapping very carefully. He bought that place in Baltimore ahead of time, and he... Wow, you would not believe the way I spelled converted in this script. But anyway... (laughs) And he converted a bunch of his divorce settlement into untraceable gold coins. Like, this dude was planning this whole thing. No, he was perfectly sane. The prosecution's first witness was Howard Yaffe, the social worker who was with Christian and Snooks that day. He told them everything that had happened that day and also detailed the injuries he'd suffered when he tried to, like... I bet he suffered a lot of injuries. So I I didn't write them down, but, like, he got a mild concussion. I mean, the good thing was the guy didn't, like, try to hold on for dear life. crash or something, right? Didn't he scrape his face on the ground? I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Sandra Boss also took the stand. She told the jury, I'm not saying that I made a very good choice of husband. It's pretty obvious that I had a blind spot. I feel so sorry for this lady. I do, too. Because, um, like, basically, she's got all these people who are like... What a fucking idiot yeah, you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. kind of blaming her. So oh, yeah. she was like, she had to acknowledge that, yeah, I'm amazing at my job. Yeah, I got this great education from these elite institutions. But in my personal life with my husband, I guess I was stupid. Yeah. Sorry. She said she believed his lies. She allowed him to control almost every aspect of her life. Mm-hmm. Which just sounds like abuse to me. Like I, Yeah. The defense attorney, Jeffrey Denner, cross-examined her and asked her again and again how a smart, sophisticated woman like herself could fall for Christian stories. So he listed a few of the bigger lies. And Sandra said, look, I knew that he tried to make himself seem more important than he was. I just didn't understand the extent of the deception until I hired the private investigator. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I think you can totally think, oh, I'm married to this guy who's, for whatever reason, kind of insecure and will, like, brag to the neighbors about bullshit. But I don't think you think, maybe he murdered two people in California 20 years ago. Exactly. He asked about finances, and she said, I made all the money, but the defendant controlled all the money. Mm -hmm. She called him the defendant the whole time. She didn't use his name. That's pretty good. Uh, I think, (laughs) you know, they talked about her being kind of cold. Like, well, yeah. 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 Then Christian's first wife took the stand, which she didn't do. Like, I tried to find her stuff Mm -hmm. in media, like, interviews. She did not talk to the media, I think. Uh Uh-huh. Because, like, she didn't divorce him until, like, I want to say, like, 10 years after they got Uh married. But anyway, she was like, yeah, I only married him because my sister was dating him at the time, and she asked me to. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, fucking weird. That's so weird. The defense called two expert witnesses who both said that Christian suffers from a delusional disorder and that he was legally insane when he took his daughter that day. And, of course, the prosecution called their own witness who was like, No, the fact that he spent so much time planning this and later concealing this helps indicate that this man was sane. 
Ultimately, the jury found him guilty of kidnapping his daughter. Mm -hmm. They also found him guilty of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, which was the SUV, obviously. But they acquitted him on another assault count. I'm assuming the shove, maybe. Uh, And they acquitted him on the charge of giving a false name to the police. Wow. He was sentenced to four to five years. Four to five years? Yeah, I think it's... When you're the parent and you kidnap the child, there it must just be like the bar drops significantly. Four to five years. I could not believe it. Holy five shit. Five was the max. Wow. Yeah, I know. I was blown away. But what about Jonathan and Linda? Yeah. So Jonathan's body had been found in... I don't know if his body was divided into three bags or if they've just found three separate bags. But, you know, it was buried in that backyard mm-hmm. in California. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Linda's body has never been found. Wow. She has not been heard from well, since yeah, this. Yeah, because she's yeah. dead. I, yeah. Well, depends on who you ask. If you uh, ask, he's dead. I mean, she's dead. Fucking Christian's lawyers. Yeah, and no, yeah, anyway. she's dead. In 2011, Christian was charged with Jonathan's murder. They'd used DNA testing to confirm that the remains belonged to Jonathan. Christian went to trial in L.A. in 2013. District Attorney Habib Balian was very upfront with the jury. He said, I'm not bringing in any eyewitnesses. I don't have physical evidence. And I don't even have a, med- a motive for murder. Mm-hmm. What I do have is a ton of circumstantial evidence. I think there's definitely a clear motive for murder. What's the motive? Well, I assume that Christian was... Living off of Dee Dee and mm-hmm. her son and daughter-in-law came in and were going to keep that from happening. Maybe. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know. Like, th- I, I mean, I'm just surprised they wouldn't make that argument. Yeah. I mean, there are some theories that like Christian was like hitting on Linda. They were kind of getting cozy. Maybe, you know, that sparked a fight between John and Clark or God, I keep I keep messing up this guy's name. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> What's his face? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. The only thing we kind of know is like he killed him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the DA spent three weeks presenting circumstantial evidence to the jury. He brought up a ton of sketchy stuff. But what sealed the deal was the fact that when those new owners dug up the dirt for their new pool, they not only found Jonathan's body in bags, they found plastic book bags, which I don't know what that means. Well, no, I do. They found plastic book bags from the University of Wisconsin and another one from the University of Southern California, where Christian had been auditing film classes. Mm. The prosecution also showed that Christian had Linda and John's pickup truck. After John was murdered. Yeah. The prosecution said that based on Jonathan's remains, Christian bludgeoned him in the head with a blunt object. And then cut up his body with a chainsaw. Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you think he returned the chainsaw? Yeah, I bet he did. God, can you imagine? <sighs> Defense attorney Jeffrey Denner said, look, my client is a liar. He makes up stories, but that does not make him a murderer. And you know what? We're overlooking a very big possibility here. That Linda is still alive and Linda's the murderer. That's exactly right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's like, 
No one's heard from Linda. Maybe she killed Jonathan and skipped town. Mm-hmm. So it was a case of circumstantial evidence. But the jury believed it. They Good. found him guilty. After the trial, Christian fired his lawyers and he was like, I'm going to represent myself at the sentencing. And the judge was like, oh, that's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea, sir. Uh, but did he listen to the judge? No. Christian tried to delay the sentencing. Uh, did not work. Turns out a law degree is helpful in these mm. situations. At the sentencing, Christian claimed he was innocent and blamed the whole thing on Linda. He was sentenced to 27 years to life. He is, of course, in the process of appealing everything. Of course he is. I believe, this is just from memory, he, on appeal, he did get his sentence reduced by one year. Oh. Whoop-de-fucking-do. Great. Um, yeah, he's exhausted all of his state appeals, so now he's moving on to the federal level. Excellent. Uh-huh. Best of fucking luck. Yeah. I hope he's still representing himself. Yeah, no kidding. So that's the story of Clark Rockefeller. Holy fucking shit. That was nuts. Isn't that crazy? Yes. I was so, you know, I love a con man. Yeah. I, I just don't get people like that. Yeah. It's amazing to me. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. That was so good. What's going on with you this week? I have a, I have a case update. Do it. Okay. This is like breaking news. Hot off the fucking presses. Okay, so the suicide texting case right. that I covered many moons ago. Yes. Michelle Carter was dating Conrad Roy. He decided he was going to kill himself. He got himself in his car with a generator, and then he got out, and she convinced him to get back in, and he died. Yeah. And she was charged with manslaughter for his death. Um, she was sentenced to two years in prison, two and a half years in prison, I believe, and then, but would only have to serve 15 months of it. But that sentence was suspended while she appealed her case. Mm-hmm. Um, she appealed her case to the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And today they released their opinion and they are not reversing her sentence. They upheld her sentence. Wow. Yes. And they said, so the argument on the appeal was that there was no way to know that without her influence that Conrad Broy wouldn't have died anyway. Mm. And the um, opinion of the justices said that they don't believe that's true because like his previous suicide suicide attempts, he got himself out of the situation. He had previously attempted suicide and he'd always reached out to someone. Yeah. He did the same in this case. And, she and this person said, encouraged him to follow through. Mm-hmm. So they have upheld her sentence. Wow. So the next step, and I assume that they'll appeal to the United States Supreme Court, but. Okay, am I a butthole or what? Because I'm like, it's only two and a half years yeah. and you convinced a guy to kill himself. How about you yeah, just, do your, just time do your time and you'll be out when you're I like would be shocked 20. if the um, United States Supreme Court even agrees to hear the case. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. So mostly because just statistics, but you know. exactly. <laughs> yes. So that and like that literally came out today. The opinion was released. So, well, thank you for doing the thing that I've never done, which is follow, follow up on anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's so um, I hope she just fucking serves her time and like yeah, yeah. Just learn just, the lesson. Exactly. Try to be a better person. Exactly. Yeah. Oh man. Should we talk about? 
Norm and Zach had a big milestone in their lives they this did. week. They did have a big milestone in their lives. They both lost their baby shower virginity <laughs> together. That sounds so gross. <laughs> yeah, so we held, we held a surprise baby shower for my sister this weekend. It was, you know, everybody's invited ladies gentlemen yeah it was all the all the dudes and the women and the children boy and zach (laughs) (laughs) so zach had never been to a baby shower before and it came to the the gift opening section of the event and was the gift from you yeah so that's the funniest part so it was on their registry. And by this yeah. point, you know, I should say, like, most people had cleared yeah, it out. It was, was like, just a few of us left, yeah. yeah. So um, the thing that I'd gotten for them off their registry, which, anyway, we'll get to my frustration. <laughs> but um, it was one of those, like, clips to the table. It's like a yeah, chair. It's like for a high baby. chair, but it's not a high chair. It just clips right onto the table. That way it takes up less room. So Kyla <laughs> opens it, and Zach looks at it, and he goes, <laughs> oh. Make sure you install that thing correctly. <laughs> he looked horrified. He was horrified. And then Norman sees it and he's like, oh, yeah. Well. Which it's like, buddy, you are really blowing our cover here that I'm the one who buys the gifts when you're like, oh, that looks like a death trap. It's like, it came from you. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So it was a really fun baby shower. It was. It was really fun. And um, so later that evening, Zach and I were at home. We were just watching TV. And he was like, hey, I'm I'm really sorry if I embarrassed you at the baby shower. And I was like, what are you talking about? Embarrassed me? Like, I, I had a good time. And he's like, well, I've never been to a baby shower before. And like, I was thinking about it in that joke about the about that chair that was probably really inappropriate. <laughs> Zach should never be worried about being inappropriate when no. my dad is also at the party. My dad is always going to be the most inappropriate person in any room that he is in. So, uh, Kyla, Zach apologizes. He hopes you were not offended by his concern over you, your baby falling out of the high chair. <laughs> Well, we decided that what we needed to do was test it by having Zach get in the high chair. <laughs> That's right. And if it could hold Zach, then it'll be fine with the baby. <laughs> All right. So what's your what's your opinion, Kristen? Obviously, you haven't heard the dramatic conclusion yet, but are you pissed about the two-parter? No. Okay. But see, I I listen to podcasts that are like That serial- are like yeah. serialized. So yeah, I'm, so I'm cool with it. All right. I mean, I'm feeling very anxious about it. Why? You came, I don't know. You came over. You were like nervous. I and was. Like, I when I wrote, I finished. So I finished writing it last uh-huh. night, and I was like, "Okay, should I add? Like, should I go?" And I kept like, I was like, "No, no, that's where I'm going to stop it." And I'm like, "Well, maybe I should." And I'm like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> like, if I would have finished, we would still be talking about my case right now. What's the worst case scenario? Like, what are you uh, uh, that somebody will. I guess this is probably what the concern is, and this is stupid because what the fuck does it matter? Go ahead. Um, is that someone will go then research the case, and it won't be the next episode won't be exciting because they'll already well, that's know their what fault. happened. You know, that's like yeah. if you, you know, yeah. peek and open your Christmas presents early yeah. or something like that's yeah. that's on them. 
and it won't compare I to had how you tell no it. idea that I would feel so strongly about this until like I was going to say you like, are like just I'm anxious about sweating it sweating like nervous yeah. big time yeah oh, so oh, I'm sorry no. guys I hope you don't hate it and by extension me that's probably the right is, is that <laughs> that's the probably one? the real thing right I, yeah because you're yeah. you're taking this way too personally yeah. so for you yeah. the worst case scenario is everyone hates you mm-hmm. and stops listening and maybe writes a list of mean names about you. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Which I don't think will happen. Okay, good. We're, we're good. We're good. Um, should we tell everyone about the lofty goal I set that you said was for impossible? For fuck's sake, Kristen, there's like four days left I, for that. Four days? By the time this fucking thing comes oh, out? Oh, you're right. Oh, we can't tell it. <laughs> Two days! <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Basically, we're hoping for more reviews on yes. iTunes. If you we'd love that, to we'd get our next milestone goal mm-hmm. is 150. So, if you have not already, head on over to iTunes, please, and leave us a rating, um, leave us a review. Only if you loved us. Yeah. Uh huh. Don't be mean to us. That's right. I can't. Clearly, I can't handle it. <laughs> <laughs> By the way. Um, my niece at the baby shower said that Brandy and I were laughing too loudly, which... Yeah, I mean, she's, a, it's spot on. Yeah, it's a complaint we've gotten since elementary yeah, school. That is correct. <laughs> I mean, I cannot fault her for that. It is 100% accurate. Uh-huh. But I and also, unlike you guys right now, she can't turn down the volume. She just had to, like, <laughs> walk, to walk into walk the living the room. room her ears. Oh, poor girl. Poor thing. <laughs> <laughs> But um, if hey, if you kept the volume up this whole time, thank you. We mm-hmm. appreciate it. Um, another thing we'd appreciate you guys doing. I mean, if we're just listing off things that we'd like you to do, <laughs> we asked you for the rating and the review. We asked you to keep listening. Why don't you also head on over to our social media? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. We're in all of those places. Reddit. We talked about our our new our new Reddit thingy. Should we see if we have any more? No, that's going to be depressing. Oh, okay. <laughs> to the unofficial let's go to court reddit page okay and then uh join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics and i'll finish that episode a podcast Podcast adjourned (laughs) and now for a note about our process i read a bunch of stuff then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary and I copy and paste from the best sources on the web and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the Vanity Fair article, The Man in the Rockefeller Suit by Mark Seal, as well as articles in the Boston Globe, ABC News, the New York Times, the Associated Press, and Wikipedia. And I got my info from an eight-part series of articles in the Lincoln Journal Star, as well as the Omaha World and the New Yorker. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. <laughs>